Welcome everybody to the Diecast Movie Podcast. For this episode, we have a special interview brought to you by my dad. Take it away, Dad. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the latest episode of the Diecast Movie Podcast. We're celebrating our 100th episode. And if you have any feedback from this episode or any of our prior episodes, feel free to email us at diecastmoviepodcast at gmail.com. I'll just let you know that after this interview with Wesley Year, our next episode is going to be the third part of the Hammerama sub-series that we're doing with Alistair Hughes. And we're going to be talking about One Million Years B.C. And if you're wondering what that series is about, I'm going to let you listen to the promo right now. Then after the promo, we're going to go straight into the interview. Hope you guys enjoy. Thank you. I'm Al from New Zealand. And I'm Stephen from Maryland, USA. We are Hammerama. Welcome to our new podcast, Enter Freely. And of your own will. Part of the multi-award-nominated Diecast Movie Podcast, Hammerama is a wide look at the world of Hammer Hard from either side of the globe. Each month, we will throw a die to decide which category from the film Vault of Hammer we are going to discuss. The Dracula, Frankenstein, or Mummy Cycles, science fiction, prehistory, or the experimental 1970s. We will cast our international eyes across, then and now, reviews of the movie. Its place in the Hammerverse. Our encounters with the stars. A film poster critique. And unusual associated merchandise. So join us for our bite-sized discussion of Hammer's gory glories, stitched together from both ends of the earth. Hammerama is a proud part of the Diecast Movie Podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Diecast Movie Podcast. And this is just not another episode. This is episode 100. That's right, the 100, the big century mark. And I have a special interview today with Wesley Err, who's an actor, author, producer, director, educator, and probably a whole bunch of other things I'm leaving out. Most of you just know him as one of two roles, Will Marshall from Land of the Lost or Michael Horton from Days of Our Lives. How you doing today, Wesley? I, I'm great. Uh, yes, all around good chap too. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, you're not listeners. You're, we're doing this as a Zoom call, so we get to see each other. And he he's like an animated cartoon almost. He's got this energy that, of somebody like that's 25 years old. Yeah, I'm telling you something. You know, back 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 when movie. Movie didn't talk. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! You know I do. I you know, I turned seventy and uh, this this last year, and it is it's so odd for all, all all everybody out there who is getting up at this age, and suddenly you just turn the corner, and it is the bizarrest thing. And, and I find myself looking back a lot more at, at what in my life, but but I find that I am more grateful today for every day that I have, knowing that my, my time is coming to an end. And, uh, but I, I find that, that it, instead of going into depression, I went into gratitude. And it really has been that way this year. <clears throat> and I was surprised because, you know, I thought, ah, you know, I'm just happy I made it. But a lot of people that I know, my friends, never made it. And I think, you know, just celebrate. But, but it, it, it is amazing how, how grateful one can feel 
if you choose to feel. I know that sounds stupid. I'm sounding like a, like a, a terrible uh, uh, life coach here, but uh, a lot of my friends and I have been having this discussion in the last couple of days. So, well, I especially with what's going on the planet and stuff like that with the world and, and what we're doing, going through right now. But but how grateful we all are for what we have. I interviewed an actor, Nehemiah Persoff, a, a little while ago, and he's 102. And, and still painting, still sharp as a tech, doing everything. And his whole thing is you constantly move forward. You look forward. And I think looking at what you've been doing and have coming out, you're constantly in that same mindset where you're moving forward, always doing something. And I think for people, as we get older, that's the key thing. Because once you stop moving forward, that's when I think it, it all hits. And then it's a little harder to get that momentum going. I, I agree. That would, you know, somebody said the, the secret to uh, to uh, fighting old age is keep moving. <laughs> Just don't sit. Keep going. It's harder to take out a moving target, people. It's harder to take out a moving target. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you, as you know, listen. I, I, you know, when we do these autograph shows, uh, Kathy who played Holly on Land of the Lost, and, and Phil Bailey plays Chaka. You know, we bring this yellow wrap. And because in in the opening of Land of the Lost, which I sang the theme song to, it was uh, Marshall, Wild, and Holly on a routine expedition met the greatest earthquake ever known. High on the rapid, it struck their tiny raft. Ah! Plunged them down a thousand feet below to the land of the lost, to the land of the lost. Then Grumpy the dinosaur goes, roar! So we're, we go over a waterfall in the yellow raft. So we bring this yellow raft, put it on the floor, we all put yellow life jackets on. We have yellow oars, and fans get in the raft with us, and we scream like we're going over a waterfall for a photo. And I and I know I said to you before we started, I said, you know, ten years ago, this was a fabulous idea, but now ten years later, I need an orthopedic raft, one that comes up, I can hop in, goes down, because by the end of the first or second day of these conventions, I'm just hobbling like an old fart. It's uh. <laughs> you know, but, but we have, we genuinely have so much fun with, with, you know, with fans and, and it's amazing that people still remember this. The show's almost 50 years old and it continues to have a new audience. I know um, I've watched it growing up. My children watched it when they were growing up. So it's, it's one of those things I have it on DVD. So it's, 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 you know, I was rewatching a lot of the episodes in prep of the interview and my son, Ben, who's 22, is walking in. He goes, "Oh, that's the episode with the um, the guy from the Civil War, right? You know, and it's and he hadn't, he hadn't even shown up yet, and he hadn't watched it, and, and maybe like 10 years, but he knew the episodes. He was like, "Oh yeah, that's this one, that's that one." <laughs> it's it's amazing, you know. Uh, it was our show was written by the Star Trek writers, and which and David Gerald was our head writer for the first year, and who really shepherded the show and became, it became a sci-fi show. But David's famous, if you're a Star Trek fan, uh, he wrote the episode Trouble with Tribbles. But Walter Koenig, who played Chekhov, the original Chekhov, created Enoch, the talking flea tech. And you actually are wearing a shirt that has Enoch on it, I see. But and we had D.C. Fontana, Larry Niven, Spinrad, all these amazing people. And that's why, I, even though the effects look hokey, to, you know, today, because you didn't have CGI back then, but the scripts, they never, David said, David said recently in a panel, he said, I told the writers, don't write a kid's show, write an adult show that we show on Saturday morning. 
and it you know it, it worked out. I mean, I'll tell you when the sleep stack came on, the the green lizard monsters in the third episode. Oh, oh my god! So sorry about that. <laughs> Please silence all cell phones. <laughs> I, 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 and I thought I had done that. I know that it's like it's like Tim. She's calling. Um, but uh, when the sleep stack came on in the third episode, the ratings went through the roof. Uh, it became NBC's number one show, and and to this day, I'll have people people will come up and we're you know out and about, and they'll go, "Listen, those sleep stacks you scared the hell out of me." I you know I couldn't sleep as a kid, but every Saturday morning I was with my bowl of cereal watching Land of the Lost when it came on. It was a wonderful show, and what you brought up about the writing, I think back to a lot of older series, um, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. That first season, it did really well. And then they kind of killed it because they said, oh, the children are watching it. We got to write to the children instead of writing it to all audiences. And I think that's the premise that a lot of shows miss. They think they're, they have to write down to children. No, you want to write normally, and that way it brings them up. Well, it, for instance, in Land of the Lost, they were talking – Episodes about time doorways and matrices and doppelgangers that come through time doorways. And we, we left the land of the lost through the time mist and our doppelgangers came through and, and the episodes begin all over again. And the antecedents of the sleep stack, were they from the future or they from the past? It, it was, they never explained it. We, the show never said, now let me tell you kids, this is what we mean. They just said it. And I remember reading the scripts when I first got them and I go, oh, whoa. This is pretty heady stuff, you know. Our mother is is you know is gone, and a sleep stack pretends to be our mother to lure us to kill us. I, you know, this was this was not your normal Saturday morning fair, you know, which was mostly cartoons at the time. Exactly, and I think that's why I gravitated. I don't know, my brothers and I gravitated to the show because it was well, one we liked science fiction and we liked fantasy. It had both, it had all that in there, and it, it was well done. And I love Ray Harryhausen stop motion, all stop motion for that matter. And you had stop motion dinosaurs. I mean, come on. What young lad is not going to like dinosaurs? <laughs> it, it was amazing. You know, they, um, if, you, if you like the show American Pickers, which is one of my favorite, you know, they, they go around the country and try to. You yeah, know, I know find the show you're talking about. Talk. Well, recently. They had the, the son of, of, of Harry, and, and he, he had all the, the skeletons of the, the sculptures. What do you call it? The, oh, what is the word I'm missing? Of the dinosaurs, the original dinosaurs. The, the, the plastic and the, the rubber had sort of fallen off, but the armature. It was the, the armature. armatures. Yeah. And they were showing them on American Pickers the other day and trying to value them and what it would cost and stuff like that. So it's, you know, it, it, it is amazing that the, the people that worked on our show and when the first episode came out, it was the first time ever in, in television history that they had melded videotape with film. The dinosaurs were on film. We were in videotape. So we were on a blue screen, which is, uh, it's a green screen now, but today it was chroma key blue. We were on the blue screen, and they would shrink us down to be the size proportion to the dinosaurs, and they would superimpose us with the, the film of the dinosaurs. Well, it didn't work the first episode. So all the Disney people came on board. It was a huge thing in Hollywood. Uh, and they all worked around the clock and they solved the problem. It was the first day it had ever been done. So suddenly they could they could take the film, the dinosaurs, and then we 
instantly meld us and put us onto that you know, on video tape. And we would actually get to see it on the monitor completed. So it was it was extraordinary. We didn't have to like wait till the show aired. We could look as we were. They would say, "Look at Wesley, you know, look at the light up there. That big light. That that's Grumpy's head. Run to the right. You know, scream." And and that's how we did it. That makes it a lot easier for you as an actor because you know when you play to nothing, at least you're able to get an idea, and they're able to get the idea of where do you exactly want your sight lines to be, so you don't. You know, you're, you're, you know, if you're looking at this big dinosaur and you're looking at somebody that might be only seven foot when you're supposed to be looking at something 30 foot, it's just, you know, it's not going to hold as well. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and, and Kathy Coleman, who played Holly, she was 10 years old. And Phil Paley, who played Chaka, the monkey boy, Phil was nine years old. and He was the youngest black belt in karate in the United States. In fact, there's, if you go to YouTube, it's hysterical. His teacher was uh, 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 Chuck Norris. And they went on the Johnny Carson show with Johnny. And Phil, who is like, you know, three and a half feet tall, flips Johnny over on his back, and it is hysterical. So Google it. It's, you know, just, you can, you can find it. And that's how Phil got the job on Land of the Lost. The Croft saw him on the Carson show. They were looking for a kid that could play a monkey and do all the moves, and they brought Phil in, and, and he got the job right away. And what I thought was interesting is he had to learn a whole language because he, he wasn't supposed to be speaking English. So he developed a language and he had to learn that to apply to the different words. Yeah, it was, it was, a, a, it was a, a language. It was, I think it was a combination of five different languages. There was a linguist, from uh, and she created this language. There's a dictionary. It's a Bakuni dictionary. And so when he was going, you know, Oganza Bisasa, Big Magic, or Weera Ari, Will and Hartley. Um, there were some episodes where, I mean, remember, he's a little kid in a monkey suit, and he had to memorize these. He couldn't make anything up. He couldn't have lips. They had to be specific. And there are literally some episodes where Chaka is talking nonstop in Pakuni, especially I think there's an episode called The Musician. And, do, and did you understand anything he was saying? Like, did, we, did you have, like, a translation going in, or did you actually have to figure it out? You know, cause, like, is his script all in Pakuni, and you're like, what in the world is he saying? But this is what I'm responding. <laughs> you know, that's a good question. I actually have some of the original scripts. I should go look at them. But I think, I think there was in like parentheses, like Oganza Bisasa, Big Magic, Ota, Yeba Ota, uh, Water and stuff. But, uh, and I think they put in parentheses what the actual translation was for us. But it, 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 it was quite, it was quite amazing. It was one of the first, I know the Klingons now on Star Trek and, and, create their own language and stuff. But I, I believe that the Pakuni language was really one of the first times on television a foreign sort of sci-fi language was created with the dictionary. It's it's kind of funny because it has that Star Trek connection even there. You know, like you're talking about that. And it start, you, you stole from Star Trek by stealing writers and actors and all that, you know, actors that are going to be writing for you, like Walter Koenig, and here they're stealing from you. <laughs> well, Sid Croft told me recently, he said that he asked um, uh, Gene Roddenberry if he would come on board and help him with Land of the Lost. And Gene says, I can't, I'm, I'm too busy, but I've got this young writer we just used named David Gerald. And that's how David came on board. And when Walter Koenig, Kathy and I do the Star Trek convention in Vegas, we've done it for the last seven years. And we're the only show that they allow in other than Star Trek because our connection to Star Trek is Mike Westmore did all of our makeup and props and created the monsters. Walter Koenig, who and I said created Enix, the, the talking police set, um, he comes by our table. Walter's got a 
he's got like a, a little hat on and he kind of shuffles a little bit these days. And he always comes by our table and goes, those damn Sid and Marty Croft, I should have gotten residual. I should have gotten residual. <laughs> <laughs> I told that to Sid the other day because I were cheap. And, uh, <laughs> it's like, I, I should have gotten more. But I mean, it, it, back in the day, everything was different back then. And, you know. And- well, we, I found out that the budget, now remember, this was 1974, 5, and 6. So the budget for an episode, one episode was $54,000. Now, that's unheard of. And we shot each episode, we did it in, in two and a half days. So in a week, we shot two complete episodes, which, again, had never been done, especially for a drama, you know, with this kind of props and dinosaurs and, you know, all the special effects. So that's why they were so, you know, they were, every every penny went on the screen. The Cross were famous for that, but they didn't get a lot of money for their shows. So every penny, every every bit of money that they got, they threw it up on the screen with Puff and Stuff and Lidsville and Sigmund the Sea Monster and things like that. Now you mentioned Michael Westmore doing the effects. Because what what can you explain? Because the sleeve stack effect, I think, if I remember hearing correctly, he had a there was a technical difficulty with the eyes and he had to fix it. There was well, the sleeve stack out. The, the guys that played the sleeve stack were basketball players. They were UCLA basketball players. And in fact, one of them went on to become one of the most famous basketball players is Bill Lambeer of the Detroit Pistons, the bad boy of basketball. And he, in his bare feet, foot, he, he was almost seven feet tall. These guys were literally, so they had stilts on, which raised them up another foot and a half. They had a pointed head, gave them another foot. So basically they were like nine, 10 feet tall, you know, but there were wetsuits. So the, so they, Michael said that what he did, they contacted the wetsuit maker uh, for, for, for the guys that were doing, you know, like surfing and things like that, and made extra large ones. They only had three of them. And he put scales on them and stuff like that. But what happened is the eyes were kind of a, a plastic bubble. And when the light hit them, you could see inside. It wasn't the, the look. So it was his wife. I think he, Michael said that his, his wife had some material that you could that they were able to sew behind the eyes and the, the guys could still see through it. But when the light hit it, the camera lights and all the, the studio lights, it looked that red glowy sort of thing and it, it solved the problem. Oh, and not only did it solve the problem, it added so much to the sleeve stacks. <laughs> they were terrifying. I mean, come on. They were, you know, the good news is a Saturday morning and, you know, they could never catch us. I mean, they already caught us. But, you know, they were like, slowly moving, you know, they, they had arrows and they you know, they would shoot them and they would like go about like three inches and fall on the floor. Uh, but they were, you know, it was one of the scariest. We, we still have, we, we bring, sometimes we bring a sleeve stack with us, not an original sleeve stack, but we have heads, of, uh, molds of, of sleeve stacks that fans have made. And people will come by and just say, oh no, <laughs> get that away from me. I mean, it still gives them that air. And now, now I know why Bill Lambeer was such a bad guy in the Detroit Pristons. It all started when he was a sleaze deck. He developed those evil tendencies there, <laughs> and he took it to basketball. You know, he was he was not the nicest guy in basketball and uh, had a horrible reputation for not being a very good player. I mean, he was a good player. He wasn't a fair player. So he's been uh, coaching the H's in Las, in Las Vegas, which is the, the women's basketball team. So Kathy and I made arrangements with the head of the league to go surprise him in Las Vegas a day he was coaching the Aces. And the girl, all the women knew we were coming, but he didn't know we were coming. So they had eight by tens of a sweet set head. They'd give it to all the ladies. 
So we walk in, Kathy and I. Of course, we don't look like we used to. Anyway, there's no age of Well, Kathy came. She's got long, blonde, pretty hair. But we had a police tag head and stuff. And as soon as we walked in, all the women put, held up the 8x10 police tag head in front of their faces. They looked around. I mean, he's just he's a tall man. He's just seven feet tall. He's looking around. Come on here, you know. And we come in, you know, and he finally realizes what's going on, you know, and and we, you know, we, we give him a hug, and he, he bends down very low to give us a hug. And we had, you know, photos taken. We gave him some gifts that we had uh, of some some things I wanted to give him, you know, as a present. And we did some interviews and things. And then when he left, because he had to go finish, I got to go, I got to go. So he, it was because he was coaching. And the head of the league came up to us and said, you know what? I've known Bill Lambert since he played in college. I have never seen him smile this much. So, you know, we all had a, a huge connection back then, all of us. It was quite a little, it was quite a family. And we all are still very close. The guy played, Spencer Milligan played my dad. Uh, he'll call me up on the phone. He's a recluse kind of living in Milwaukee area. And he'll go, hey, Wesley, this is your papa speaking. And I'll think, papa, can you hear me? <laughs> but it's, and Kathy's like my sister. I just talked to her a few minutes ago and, uh, you know. Paley. I mean, we're all very close friends. It's so funny because I mentioned Nehemiah Persoff, and he was Papa to Barbara Streisand in Yentl. <laughs> oh, my God. There you go. <laughs> I, just, I just call Spencer because I'm, I'm, I, I worry about Spencer because, you know, he's been a little quiet lately, so I just hope everything's good, and uh, I love him. I'll say it's the casting, they all get along great, and I think I think I've heard you say before, it's like, you had your real family, and then you had the Crofts gave you a whole nother family. It, it, exactly. They they cast my real and my TV family. And who, who would have known that, you know, I mean, sometimes Kathy and I will do a show together, and we'll bump together. Like in Vegas, you know, we'll, she, we'll, I'll get a hotel room at like the Rio or wherever, and she, we'll get a queen bed, and she, she, we share them, you know, she hangs out in the room, and we just, we're that close. I mean, we really, uh, you know, we have no secrets, and we're there good and bad times, too. Well, that's good that you got you know such a nice friend. But one thing I've never heard you bring up in the interviews is a person who also was in some of the episodes, Richard Keel. Oh my God, he was wonderful. Richard Keel, of course, everybody knows from Jaws in the Double Seven movie, you know, and he was a big guy. I've never seen hands that big, even with Bill Lambeer. Richard Keel, I put my little paw in his huge paw, and it would disappear. And he did two episodes. He played, played Malice, the Cyclops. Richard, he's, he's, he's passed away. And, of course, he was in Star Trek, too. Mm -hmm. He did the Star Trek conventions. And we would see him at the Star Trek conventions with his wife. And his wife was a tiny little lady. They met in college. He saw her at a bar, he told me. And she, I mean, she, it really was Mutton Jeff. She was, you know, she was smaller <laughs> than me. And then, you know, there's Richard Keel and towers over her. And they had this amazing love for so many years. And one of the gentlest giants you can imagine. And what a talent. And, of course, his breakthrough again was Jaws in, in you know, 007. And it really put him on the map. Oh, I but, know. Cause, I mean, everybody knows Jaws. Everybody, I mean, you know, from 007 to Teeth and all that stuff. And he, and he goes from uh, being a bad guy to uh, the anti-hero good guy thing as the series progressed of movies. Yeah. He was, he was amazing. You know, it was, we got to work with some extraordinary people. I mean, listen, one of the greatest things in, in my life, in my career, uh, I'm going to say all the things that I've done, 
is the access that I've had to people that I have been huge fans of, you know, as a kid, you know, like John, even Johnny Whitaker, when I was a little, who played, uh, you know, uh, Family Affair and, and Sigmund the Sea Monster, when I was a little boy, I would see Johnny as a little boy, we're about the same age, I think, and, um, and I would see him like in, in Huck Finn, Disney movies and things like that, Littlest Angel, a Hallmark, I think it was a Hallmark, and I would think one day I want to be Johnny, and now we're pals, and but, you know, I, we do these conventions, and like we sat next to Dirk Benedict the other day, you know, Lou Ferrigno will be sitting next to us for five days in another show. You know, it's, it, it, you know, Dawn Wells, before she passed, she would get in a raft, you know, along with John Schneider would get in the raft. Everybody I know, every celebrity that comes to these conventions, oh, we want to get in the raft, we want to get in the raft. But it's, that, it, it's the, the, the extraordinary thing has been truly you know, my life just briefly brushes against the people that I have been so enamored with. And, and you know, it's, it's, I think that's been the greatest gift of, of, of what I do for me. Well, I agree. And, and, and going back to Land of the Lost, how did you get cast in Land of the Lost? I know we're going to talk about Days of Our Lives in a little bit because that was, was going on concurrently and with the filming and stuff. But how did you, cause how did you get a Land of the Lost? Because you were, you were a lot older than the character – the character you were playing, but you looked young. I mean, you can't help it. You still look young. <laughs> you, you just got that great gene. Jordash. <laughs> Jordash gene. That's it. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, it's a Hollywood story. A friend of mine, my friend Bruce Ostrander, who was one of my best friends, said, hey, I'm going to Sid Cross house. He's, you know, go swimming. You want to go? I go, yeah, sure. I mean, I, kind of knew who Sid was. I didn't, you know. So I go I go to Sid's house and still living in the same house as three acres in Los Angeles in the hills, tucked away in the hills. It's like walking into a fantasy land, jungles and parrots. And I, it's extraordinary. It's the most peaceful, calm place with waterfalls and everything. It, it's what you would hope the, the mind of Sid Cross would create in his own life. So I go to a pool party and Sid go, looks at me and goes, hey, you. I got it. I'm casting a new series, Land of Lost. Call them on, on Monday. Here's the casting director. Give her a call. And I called. I went in, and Sid said, you walked in, and that was it. The network said, that's it. He, he's it. And he said, we cast everybody. The dad, uh, Spencer Miller, was cast around me. So that's why we look so much alike. And I read with Kathy, who I think came in four or five, five or six times to read for Holly. And... And that, that's how I got the show. I mean, literally by going to this pool party. And Sid is fabulous because we're still friends to this day. And he'll call me out of the blue. And I, I don't say we talk for an hour. I listen for an hour. And he will, I'll go, hello, Sid, how are you? And the, the next thing I say is, goodbye, Sid. It was nice talking to you. <laughs> and, but his stories are extraordinary. Uh, you know, oh yeah, Michael Jackson. You know, used to come here, and you know, Mama Cass, and you know, uh, all these. I mean, it was it's like the the who's who of the world. You know, he's working, I think, on a, a project. You know, now with uh, David Copperfield, and he is still creating and, and and making magic. In fact, he's working on something that's going to be pretty huge, and he'll announce soon. Awesome, and and that's again the whole idea of keeping the moving forward. You know, don't 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 rest on your don't rest and stop. Keep going. Absolutely. You know, uh, last night I, I, uh, I've been working on, on a ghost show uh, for three years uh, called Parasense. Uh, it's a 
paranormal and science combined with this really uh, wonderful Ross Allison, who's this amazing ghost hunter out of Seattle. Spooks in Seattle is a company he has. And Chad Goodwin, who's this this incredible scientist, four, com- four science companies, and he actually has the patent on the uh, the, flat, the flux capacitor. I mean, you come like back to the future. He's got the patent. Um, and they've been we've been creating, uh, in the last few years, creating uh, how do you prove touch? Somebody says, I got touched by a ghost or whatever happened. How do you prove that somebody had touched? So we're developing all this new scientific equipment that actually measures all sorts. It, it's extraordinary. So last night, we had um, we turned it into a documentary, and it, it, it had its premiere last night in Oregon at a theater. And I hear it was a pretty, pretty huge success, which is exciting. Um, so, you know, you just have to keep reinventing yourself and moving forward, as, as we said. And, uh, you know, I... Feel like I'm still. I, I feel like I'm the luckiest guy in the world, you know. So I get to I get to still play and have fun, and you know. And that, that's <laughs> the thing, you know. But you know, you go out there and do those things, but you obviously have the talent and the drive, and that's the key thing. You know, it's it's. I think I think a lot of times people realize you you need to have some talent, but a lot of it is the hard work you got to put in, and people see the end product and don't realize sometimes the years that you just said with Paranor with Parasense you know, the years it took to get it up off the ground and out there. And they, they see the empire. Oh, that didn't take them long. It's like, no, no, it only took, you know, forever. Uh, that, was three, that was three years. We had to deal with sci-fi network. It was going to be a TV series. We started production. You know, it's, it's a Hollywood story up and down and, you know, and goodbye. But, uh, you know, you just have to sort of keep chugging along and, uh, you know, Unfortunately, I still got a little. I still got a little coal in the engine. I'm still like a choo choo train. It's still chugging. So you still got more raft rides left in the body. <laughs> <laughs> now everybody has to have an origin story, you know. You know. So what was your origin? How did how did this all begin? You know, for you, starting off, growing up, and well, everything like that. Because you you had you had you've lived in multiple different states. I live in a state of confusion, but you lived in a lot of different states. You <laughs> pretty darn good, I must say. You know, I, I I was born in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, but I was raised in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. And my dad left when I was two. He just abandoned us and just disappeared. Never came back. And I think that I was so desperate for attention, to be honest. I think, you know, I think we're all drawn to businesses in our lives that fulfill some sort of darker, deeper you know, need. My mother was a, became a therapist. <laughs> she needed a therapist. So, but I remember five years old, I stood up in, in Mississippi. My family was, were all educators, uh, professors and college, college president and stuff like that. And I said, I'm going to be an actor. And they all looked at me like I was from Mars. <laughs> and, you know, I, I think, I think I was just drawn to that. And, and uh, you know, and I just kept pursuing it. And I was I was lucky. I, I got very lucky very quickly. And uh, we moved around. My mother got divorced, and she went back to college and uh, became a psychologist. And then I put my mom through law school, graduated top of her class. And so, but she we moved to you know Illinois and Texas, and finally Las Vegas, where I met Robert Goulet and Carol Lawrence. I was in high school. I was selling artwork at the Desert Inn at the Frontier Hotel. And Bob was performing there. I was 17, and they said, "Hey, we're doing a, we're doing a." Um, I made them laugh, I guess. 
And he said, we're doing a concert tour. I, they were doing I Do, I Do with Ian Carol Bob Robert Gillet, Carol who, of course, from West Side Story, Maria, in the time they were huge stars. And we need a driver to drive us around from place to place. <laughs> so at 17, they put me to New York, and I had never been to New York. And I ended up driving a Dodge Trapco motorhome. It said the Bob Goulet show on the side. And I'm, <laughs> I don't know how the hell I got there. Cause I got, so we would play one, one week in a place, like they do, I do, I do. We pack up, you know, like after the week, pack up the van and the, uh, the mobile home. Sometimes the kids, their kids would be with us. And I'd drive them to the next town, wherever that town was. And, you know, and they would there sometimes to do a concert tour. They were having fights and stuff. But I remember one time that going in Delaware, in Rhode Island, going over a bridge, and, and the, the motorhome just stopped working. I kept pushing on the gas. And this was like, this is midnight. And Carol's in the back with the kids, and David Leland, his manager, and Bob is there. Bob's been drinking a bit and sitting next to me. And I can't get, I'm 17. I can't get this thing to move. I'm terrified. I pull over. And Bob says, ah, I, I'll, go, I'll go flag down a, a trucker. And, and so he goes to hitchhike in the middle, you know, middle of the night on the freeway. And, and he's gone. Somebody picks him up. And he's gone for hours. And suddenly I'm with Carol and, and on the side of the road. And there's a bang on the door. And I go, Carol, I'm just watching in the back, in the back. 17, I'm protecting them like I'm, I'm some sort of karate expert. <laughs> And it's the Highway Patrol. Of course, it says the Bob Goulet show on the side. So I, I think they kind of knew what the heck was going on. And I said, Mr. Mr. Goulet, he, he went to try to find help. We can't get the cars not working, the, the, the mobile home, the motor home. And Bob comes back about four hours later, drunk out of his mind with the trucker. Trucker, It's hitched tight to a, a truck stop, then drinking and boozing with the boys. They came back to help us come to get it. They opened the hood of the, this mobile home. And it was just a little pin on the cruise control. And they popped that pin in and off we went. And it was, you know, it, it was adventures like this. And that was my, and I, after, after that summer on the, uh, the Goober Growth Circuit, which is on the East Coast, I called home and said, hey, you know, I'm not going to go back to uh, college and, and UNLV. And uh, I checked into the Y and began my career in New York. So, yeah. Robert Goulet is, is what I, I've, Enjoy him so much. I I saw him live, thankfully, once in theater doing Camelot, where he was playing King Arthur, and it was just spectacular. You know, it, it was usually everybody knows him as Lancelot, but here to see him do it, and I was oh, like three rows from the stage, and it was just it's a memory I'm going to take with me to the grave. And I love it because live theater, as you've done many times, we're going to get to in a second, is is something where it happens. It's tailor made. For that night's audience, that performance is tailor made for that night's audience, and it's gonna—it's always gonna be that night's. And the guy who was playing Merlin kept getting him to crack up, and he couldn't stop laughing. And and it, it, some people could say, "Oh, he couldn't keep it together." I was just enjoying it because it was just so human and so nice, and it's something, you know, that that's gonna be different than other performances where the, Merlin was getting him, and he knew he got him, and he was just—he just kept feeding it on the giggles. And it's live; you can't stop. You know, you gotta—you gotta. You gotta you eventually get composure, and he moved on like the professional he is. But it was just a marvelous night. And, and listen, he was—he was so talented, and I still am in touch with his his last wife, Dura. And um, he, you know, he—he he was one of the good old boys. And every time, every 
because I, you know, they took me out. I was in college when I met him, and they took me out of Vegas, and I stayed. And every time I'd run into him in Hollywood, he goes, "You go back to college?" I go, "No, I did." He goes, "You should go back to college." I said, "Bob, I have two TV series." <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, that, that, yeah, yeah. Go so, back to college, and that's over. <laughs> yeah, and we were doing in the in the theater in the round. They, I so during the week I would sometimes dress Bob. So he, when we were doing I do I do, he had all these custom changes real quick. Because it's the story I do I do is a, a couple. It's from their meeting to when they passed away, and that song sometimes in the evening when shadows are deep. So. So when we were in the theater in the round, they had like a little, uh, it was a, in the aisle, it was a rope and a little trolley. And it was hit, like a dressing room. They would lower me down. He would walk off stage. I have his costumes there. And he'd, he'd change and put all the stuff on and, and go back and walk out on stage. And then they'd pull me back up. And I remember the last night one night, he said, you know, Wesley, you're amazing. We haven't missed one costume change. I'm so proud of you. That costume change, I forgot to give him something. Again, I'm 17 years old. <laughs> what do they, they, they say in sports when they say, "Oh, he's made 100 free throws in a row," Rick? You know, <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Whoever said that to you was the kiss of death. That was is their fault. It wasn't you. It was all them. They 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 destroyed your mojo. <laughs> <laughs> But eventually, you got to do you got to learn live theater in the American Shakespeare Festival in in Connecticut. I did, and the theater just burned down in Stratford, Connecticut. It did. It just burned down like about a year ago. I was like devastated. It was amazing, and um, I, I auditioned. I, I was working at a temp job in New York. I mean, and I auditioned with an open call for Shakespeare. I didn't know Shakespeare I'm from the South, Mississippi mostly, and. He said you had to do two pieces, so I went to the library, the, you know, the one with the lions in New York. I, I, I learned two sonnets, and I didn't learn them very well, I was told later. And I auditioned. It was all run by the people at uh, Juilliard School of Music. It was the head of Juilliard, was the director, was Michael Kahn, and all, all the other teachers. And I got to, I, I landed the role of Ariel in The Tempest as the, as the understudy with Morris Kornowski and Seda Thompson. All, here are all the great classical American actors back in the day. And the first day we met, we rehearsed for a month in New York and then performed in Stratford, Connecticut for nine months. And this was my first professional job. And I get on stage. And remember, I don't know Shakespeare. I didn't study it. And I and I get on stage and I go, Oh, hail, great master, great so hail. I come to answer thy beck and call. Say it to fly to swim, to dive into your fire. And they go, Wesley. Not on our stage. I go, what's wrong? They go, you're accent. I go, what accent? <laughs> and of course, I have this deep Southern accent. And so they, they sent Liz Smith, who was this linguist from Juilliard. Everybody's terrified her. She's from England. And very imposing lady, to say the least. And every day for nine months, I had voice lessons. Instead of going running and jumping, I had to go running, jumping, ghost. I had to learn. I had to learn consonants, and uh, and they got rid of my accent. The last the last night we had an actors club there, and Liz was getting drunk, and she came up to me and she said, "Wesley, darling, 
This is the most regrettable experience I've had this entire season at Stratford. Has been to make you lose that wonderful. <laughs> so, and that's that's how I finally got rid of my accent. It was, you know, I just I lucked into this this opportunity, you know, and it was, you know, a lot of luck, a lot of luck. I, I got to hear with your old accent. Do run, Holly, run. Run, Holly, run. <laughs> There's a dinosaur. <laughs> I used to do the dinosaur show. Twice I did the dinosaur show. I sang on. <laughs> I love Dino. It was like, see the USA. In your shed. Is that note high or lower? Chevrolet, high or lower, everybody. <laughs> I just had to do that. I had to hear, like, what would it have been like? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but the good news is if I get too tired or drunk or something like that, my southern accent just comes right back and I just be right there now. So, <laughs> you know, if I do shows down in Mississippi and Tennessee, well, it's just right back there, you know. So my accent was so thick, my family didn't understand me. <laughs> That's true. I don't know where it came from and why it was so over the top, but there we go. What? Bubba, what do you say, Bubba? <laughs> Uh, That's bad when your own family doesn't know what you're talking about. Exactly, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think a lot of people out there can understand that feeling when your family doesn't know what the hell you're talking about. Either. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's not knowing what you're talking about, and there's not understanding what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> or not caring or wanting to know what you're saying. <laughs> oh, my goodness. But you've also done a lot of other theater stuff besides Shakespeare. You did West Side Story, where you yeah, were like one of the Jets. Yeah, action. When you're a jet, you're a jet all the way from your first cigarette to your last dying day. And I love the new Steven Spielberg movie. Oh my God, this brought for an Academy Award this year. Oh my, it is just, it's heaven. Heaven. And for those I didn't think they could, you know, rewrote the book and it's just amazing. And for those listening, the Academy Awards are the, ne- the day after this interview. And so we'll find out whether or not it won anything, you know, and, and things like that. I love West Side Story. Absolutely. Yeah, me too. Uh, I, I like seeing it. One, I like seeing. I love seeing things in movies. I love seeing things on TV, and I love seeing things in theater. I, I, I like all the different arts, and I like actors that are able to perform for all three different ones because it's something different for each one. As you, for you as an actor, because you know when you're performing on stage, you're, you're performing in what way? Yeah, it's it's live. You know, it, it, I was lucky for a long time when dinner theater was a big was big back in the day and they would have, you know, like Jamie Farr and, you know, or, 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 or um, you, you know, uh, uh, Joanne Worley as Mama Rose and Hello Dolly, you know, and I got to do bus stop uh, and, and other shows and it would, you know, but so we'd go stay, you know, rehearse for a week and then perform for two or three weeks. And it was really one of the most exciting things to be able to do and, and to have, you know, the audience there, my, my favorite, I, it, there was a theater in New Orleans called the Beverly Dinner Playhouse, and it was an old, like, a, it burned down. But before it burned down, it was an old speakeasy back in the day. And, and they had, they still had the, the room where when the police would come and bust it, they had a chute where the women could throw their jewels and furs down and the liquor down to a chute down to a hidden basement. And the dressing room, where every star had played in it, sometimes Judy Garland and Sinatra, everybody back in the day, before it became a dinner theater, the mirror in the star dressing room was tinted pink. 
So when you look at yourself, you look amazing. You know, you had that pink glow, and it was not perfect for, uh, specifically so to make you look fabulous. But I remember Store Boone, one of the Daniel Boone's relatives who ran the place. <laughs> you know, he used to have a buffet. So, you know, dinner theater would come when you paid the one price. It was a buffet in the show. And he used to have the best fried chicken in New Orleans, they called it, and in the buffet. And finally, one day, they stopped serving the fried chicken, and they had creamed chicken with gravy on it. <laughs> and all the ladies, the old ladies would come, because it was, it was a great deal. So it was cheap and stuff like that. You'd come to the show and have dinner or lunch. And the, the lunch ladies would come and say, Star, where's that fried chicken? And they go, let me tell you something. You girls, you come into this dinner theater with your purses lined with tin foil. You open up your purses, you take a whole chicken, and you shut it, and you leave. And I cannot, I cannot afford to feed you anymore. <laughs> so he made the chicken with gravy so they wouldn't put it in their purse. <laughs> I loved it. He was a great, great, great guy. That's knowing what your audience is doing. Your customers are doing. It's like, wait a minute. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I remember I did Butterfly Free with Allison Arngrim, who played Nellie Olson on Little House on the Prairie. You know, we, it was it was quite it was quite a, a, a heady time back in those days. And I played I the, I did a uh, I, did, I think it was bus stop in Scottsdale, and it was the same dinner there. The Fiesta, I think it was the, I don't know, it wasn't the Fiesta. Anyway, it was in Scottsdale, and it's the same dinner theater where uh, oh my god my my brain I'm old. Uh, Hogan's Heroes, the guy. Uh, oh, 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 oh. Bob, Bob, um, Bob Crane. Bob Crane, where he died under very suspicious circumstances, murdered. And th- he was performing at that dinner theater. And the first thing I remember I said when I arrived, I said, excuse me, but is this the condo where Bob killed himself or was murdered? And he goes, no, no, no. <laughs> we, we changed location. But it was, you know, all, all the fun stories back then of what was going on behind the scenes. Uh, it, it's a, a lot of times you go to different spots and you realize, oh, so-and-so is here and here and here and uh, and that kind of thing. It, it's really kind of wild. Exactly. Uh, now, when you, when you started to get over into TV, it, it started with, I think, Kay Ballard. Oh, my gosh. You're just, you're just pulling it all out, aren't you, today? Well, I, I, I tried to be prepared. <laughs> I, oh, my God. Yeah, and I, I moved to New York. I mean, moved to L.A. because I heard you could get a house for the same thing I was paying for my apartment, which was $200 back in you know, 1972. And I got a house in, in Los Angeles for 200 bucks. And, uh, and, and I still got a job as a bar back in a German oompa bar. You know, oompa, oompa, oompa music. <laughs> And I was so hungry. I mean, I had no money. And I would go into the refrigerator and go open the big thing of maraschino cherries and just stuff my face with them. I was so hungry. But I went on open call and Variety, they were, Variety Magazine was doing, they were the producers of the Monkees were looking for a new series. And they were looking for like a Barry Williams type for the Brady Bunch. And I walked in, I auditioned, I sang, did a whole whatever I did. And I got the role, and it was a show called The Organic Vegetables, starring Kay Ballard. She owned an organic vegetable restaurant. We were the waiters, the waitresses, and I was the drummer, lead singer of the band. 
and all the waiters and waitresses, we were all singing, we, you know, singers. And so we all started filming, you know, jumping out of garbage cans like the monkeys and, and you know, running around fountains and things. And uh, there was a writer's strike, and the writer's strike killed the show out of Canada, anyway, out of Canada, and we, it never went on. And years later, so I never met Kay. I never filmed with Kay Ballard. And, of course, Kay Ballard from the Mothers-in-Law, and, and, and hopefully you, many of you remember her. And But I never got to meet her. So I'm at a party in Palm Springs. And a friend of mine who was very good friends with Kay, and she's, she's sitting there you know, on the couch. And I walk up to her, and I, I like, scoop down, I get on my knees. I said, excuse me, Miss Ballard, my name's Leslie York, because I know who you are. And I said, uh, you've been on my resume for over 30 years. And we've never met. And she and I became very close friends. And um, again, like I said, the access and the, you know, being able to to call some people my friends. And she passed away about two two years ago, I think. And uh, so. Well, it was great to have the time that time with her, though. You know, I don't I don't know how many I don't know how how long ago did you two become friends? I mean, was it? Well, we had we had fifteen years of friendship, fourteen years, and that's the and I was yeah, and I produced fundraisers in Palm Springs for a lot of charities, um, and she was always available as a celebrity to, to come, and you know she always called me Blue Eyes. Oh, Blue Eyes, nice to see you. And she was just you know she was this grand dam, amazing, just amazing singer, and I we we went to the song. Um, I'm just rambling, so I apologize. Am I just rambling too much? Because I, I feel like I'm just uh... no, no. Because because actually, it's it's as you talked about when Sid Croft calls you. You know, it's like yeah. I, I, my thing is, is the less I'm saying, and the more the person that I'm interviewing is saying, the more people are happy because they, they don't have to hear my voice. <laughs> <laughs> you see, I'm pretty. You know, I go out with my friends. I'm pretty quiet. Well, they, they would they would they would say differently, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I remember the song Maybe This Time, Maybe This Time, I'll Be Lucky, was written for Kay Ballard, but uh, Liza Minnelli sang it, became her big song. So Kay was always mad that Liza got her song. And so Liza was performing in, here in the desert in Palm Springs area. Uh, to, and, we, and we made arrangements. <laughs> oh, terrible night. It's a horrible night. Kay was going to come. We were all going to go. It was the first time Liza and Kay were going to see each other since their big fight, you know, because, uh, and so Liza comped all these tickets, like a thousand bucks worth of tickets for all of us. And at the very last minute, Kay ba- bailed on us. I'm not going. I don't feel good. Yeah. So we all went to see Liza. We're sitting fifth row center. Liza sings about mid-show, maybe this time. She sings the thing. She said, in fact, ladies and gentlemen, in the audience is my dear friend Kay Ballard. This song was actually written for her. First time she's ever said that. And ladies and gentlemen, Kay Ballard, the lights come on. And she's looked, because, you know, lights on stage, so there's lights in her eyes. She can't really see very well, I mean, obviously. Yeah. But she, I'm sitting in Kay's seat because she's not there. <laughs> <laughs> and Liza's on stage. She's looking, she's looking out there and she goes, Kay Ballard. And everybody's applauding. And she's looking right at me. And I don't know what to do. So I stand up and start applauding and looking around like I'm looking for Kay Ballard. 
And finally, Liza realizes Kay's not there. And like, what? It was an awkward moment, to say the least. And then she continued with the show. And when the thing was over, everybody's going, should we go backstage? And everybody's going, no, no, nobody go backstage. No, no. Like, we all ran. He ran. And oh, my God, my one of Kay's friends just yelled at her, said, how dare you do that? I mean, how dare you <laughs> But that's all. That's the like, that's the fun backstage stuff that I just. I mean, I just love. I love being able to be like a fly on the wall. And, and those are the stories I like because people don't always get to hear those things about you know, the, the different little connections and all that stuff. So it's so I'm saying, just feel free to add that on. <laughs> now, I I kind of say I'm not the target audience for this next thing we're going to bring up, and I probably I've, I've probably never even seen an episode of this long running soap opera. <laughs> And I know I didn't see it when you were there because I was definitely not the target audience. <laughs> but uh, unless when I was being babysat and my babysitter put it on, but I, I'd have still no recollection. But Days of Our Lives, how did you get the soap opera gig? How did you become Michael Horton? And I have to say, I did some research. The longest running actor playing Michael Horton from my, I was able to see. You, have, you are the definitive Michael Horton. Well, I actually got Days of Our Lives before Lance Lost. And um, I just went on an audition. You know, I, an agent sent me out and I got I got the job. And it was terrifying because when, again, Hattiesburg, Mississippi with my grandmother, she loved Days of Our Lives. When I was a little kid, I would sit watching the TV with her and she'd be ironing. And I could, that smell of those old burning irons on the, on the cloth. And, and, she passed on before I ever got on days. And every time I would watch Days of Our Lives for the longest time, I could always smell that iron burn. But yeah, I got to be on the show and um, it was extraordinary. I'm still very close friends with several of the guests. Bill Hayes and Susan Seaforth, you know, I, I, you know, I talked to a lot of them. Uh, I'm throwing a birthday party for Greg Marks, one of the Marks brothers, the grandson who played David Banning uh, the, next Sunday. We're throwing a party for him here in Palm Springs. I just talked to Patty Weaver, who played Trish, who was my girlfriend. And uh, and then she went on to, uh, I think, um, all, all my children. Um, but, yeah, it was, it was you know, like a family. And, and I grew up. I spent my all my 20s there and early 30s on Days of Our Lives. And, and why did you leave Days of Our Lives? I mean, did you just move on to something else? Or, or did you just decide to replace well, you with yeah, another actor because of age? Yeah, you know, I, I wasn't aging a lot, but I, I started singing. I was headlining in Vegas. Uh, I was opening for Bill Cosby. <laughs> at, at the time, opening for Bill Cosby was a wonderful thing. Now, not so much, you know? Now anybody can uh, open for him. <laughs> hey, 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 coming. I'll be here all week. <laughs> Back then, it was a gig. Now, it's just like, yeah. anybody want to open for him? Anybody? Crickets. <laughs> You're a wicked wicked man and you must be taken off the air i'm sorry <laughs> you're revoking your license <laughs> but yeah I, I was i had a big act uh we, i used to have a cool billing with coffee and, and we would sing and dance and girls dancers singers props and all that kind of stuff and uh and, and it like like just took a different journey so and i think in some ways you know journeys happen for different reasons and i think everything happens for a purpose but during this time when you were doing Days of Our Lives, you were doing some movies, but you also were doing, I think, something you're passionate about, game shows. 
Oh my God, I love game shows. Password Plus, Match Game. And I've watched these episodes, a lot of these episodes on YouTube, you know, because it, it's YouTube. It's, it's, on, it's on the internet. It's out there forever. <laughs> I know Buzz, Buzzer TV has like, it's playing all the old episodes. But I, yeah, I, I, listen, game shows were amazing. And my dream was to host a game show, which I, I did several pilots as a host. And then I ended up hosting for Nickelodeon. I, host, I, I hosted Finders Keepers for a couple of years. And, but I got to play Password with, oh my God, with Elizabeth Montgomery and Betty White and Vicki Lawrence and Susan Richardson and Deborah Lee Scott. And I mean, on and on and on. And then Match Game was, you know, come on, with that, that crazy group of people. I mean, I was, I felt so out of my league. But I remember the first day, I mean, I was a, I was a kid. I mean, I was, I was in my early 20s when I got my first guest uh, as, a, as a, a celebrity on Password at NBC. And I love Password. I used to watch it, and I thought, okay, I was so scared. And I said, please, please don't let it be Elizabeth Montgomery that I'm playing next to because she was so good, and she's a terror, and I was scared of her. So I drive through the gate of NBC, and they tell me, you're parking over there. And it, and I see it, they have me at Johnny Carson's parking spot. We're filming during the day, right? And, we, and when you do a game show, you film all a whole week's episode in one day. You, you bring in five different wardrobes for each day. You film five half hours. They had put my name over Johnny's name in his parking spot. And I park my truck. And I look to my right. And it says, Elizabeth Montgomery. And I'm like, well, it began this, she and I, she was a terror. I was scared of her. As many times as I played Password with I was still scared of her. And we had this, because we fought. We, you know, as a celebrity for a show, I wasn't trying to be funny or anything like that. I was trying to win. Because you have to remember that people had fought months and years to get on these shows. And a lot of money was at stake. And, you know, I've watched some shows where the celebrities go, ah, you know, just blow it off like it's nothing. And the contestant loses. And, you know, you can see the expression on their face like, really? You did that just to get a laugh? So Elizabeth and I would fight and whoo, we would battle it out. And I would, you know, get the show and go, well, I, I won alphabetic. You did. You know, I'm the winner. You go, I'm the winner today. You know, it was like, and, uh, and they, they obviously liked it. They kept having me on. And, and Alan Ludden and I became very close friends uh, before he passed. And, um, and, and I, I remember when he passed away, uh, he was buried at Forest Lawn, which is just around the corner from NBC, up the hill. And I was hosting my first game show. It was called Pot of Gold. It's a pilot for NBC. And they built the set for Pot of Gold in the same studio where Password was. And so I'm sitting in the makeup chair where Alan set, because we're in the same studio. And I couldn't go to the funeral that day. And I was scared. First, I'm terrified. I'm about to host my first show, and I'm really scared. So I feel so out of my league. And I'm all alone in the, in the makeup room. And I'm thinking about Alan, and I'm, cry, I'm crying. And Alan had done with one thing. He, we'd go in the makeup room, and he'd go, wait, 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 come here, come here. He said, look, always do this. He would take an eyebrow pencil, and he would draw a small little line under the lower lip to make it look fuller. So, so he'd just draw this little thing. He said, always do that. Make your lips look fuller. He said, I do it all the time. So I'm sitting there alone, crying, thinking about Alan. And, and terrified. 
And I take the eyeball test and I start putting the little mark under my lips and I look up and I say, Alan, this is for you, my friend. And, you know, I'm sobbing. And, and so it was just, you know, one of those moments. And, and then, you know, I got to play with Betty and it's so weird. I saw a match game the other day and I think everybody except Betty Flagg is gone. That was, that was in that, that episode. So it's, it's, it's an odd thing. It really is. You know, because I got to, I got to start young doing these shows. So, you know, the years have progressed quickly and sort of the last band standing. I do have to ask you. Now, I, I watched those episodes of you and Elizabeth Montgomery. And yes, you two did fight tooth and nail, but there, there is something that stomped both of you. And I, I'm, I'm going to ask you just to give you redemption. I'm just going to say the word you were given. And the first you blanked, and then both of you, it, it gets hysterical after that. Are you ready? You are mean. Hels- uh, just, I, want to, I want to preface this to everybody listening. <laughs> yeah. Helsinki. I, uh, Finland. Yes! <laughs> I learned it. <laughs> well, you know what was so bizarre, too, is that right after we shot that episode, I became the spokesman for the Helsinki formula, <laughs> which was the hair growth, the first hair growth product. I did the infomercial every night. I replaced, I think, uh, 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 who's the guy that's a tan guy? The, uh, always tan. Uh, uh, oh my gosh, oh my mind. Uh, anybody out there listening, you know what I'm talking about. Always has the dark tan. Uh, anyway, I replaced him. And you know, I'd, I'd be on the night going, is it snake oil? <laughs> and uh, because I and I know because that clip of, of Elizabeth and I with Helsinki trying to figure out, you know, Finland, uh, and we never get it. So I just thought it was sort of ironic that I was suddenly doing the formula, <laughs> which, by the way, actually that it worked. They didn't. It was a candy factory in Finland. It's no longer. I don't, they, they don't make it anymore. But there was a, something they made this formula, and they don't know why, but hair would grow. We know later it killed this bacteria, whatever the thing is that that that, that uh, Rogaine and all that stuff kills now. But uh, but nobody knew why it worked. It was it was working. But I just, I remember you know my life. It isn't snake oil. It doesn't really work. You know. So that, that was me every night uh, for for many years. I, I hope you forgive me for bringing it up. But I, I just thought it was it's such a no, hilarious I, I, scene. I, I, no, Steve. I actually don't forgive you. I mean, no. You're, you're, here, I'm hanging up now. <laughs> uh, uh, oh my God, you're plotting through my entire life. No, no, no. I'm not plotting for your entire life. <laughs> <laughs> but now we are a movie podcast. Let's let's get to the movies. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, you know, it's just, just the way it goes. And I, I think you're taking a couple of these movies to change your image. I'm guessing. You know, it's uh, because some of these, like the toolbox murders, you were, you were definitely going different than your normal type. <laughs> I was, uh, you know, and I just, it just came out on Blu-ray and it did the behind scenes and another movie I, I did, Chumps, which we did with Valerie Bertinelli. I just did the, it just came out on Blu-ray a few months ago and I just did the behind the scenes again. But yeah, Toolbox Murders was, uh, boy, that was quite, that was, I had never played a villain before, a very dark villain. And I really got into it. And Stephen King has said, if you have, if you had to rent or watch 10 movies for Halloween, he listed toolbox murders as one of his favorites. And it was one of the first slasher 
1978, it was, the, I think, the number one drive-in box office hit of that year, 78. And, you know, it's, it's been remade, and it's got a following, a little cult following on it. And with Cameron Mitchell and Pamela Burton, who's the best girl crier on the whole planet, that girl from the, the little kid to you to the adult could cry, like, amazing. She was amazing. Yeah, and, and, and it's kind of interesting because it's two killers. There's the, the toolbox murderer who is Cameron Mitchell. And then there's you who come in and do and get a couple of killings in at the end. And it's hard to say who's more despicable, you or Cameron, who's playing your uncle. So I guess it's in the family. In the, but that scene with you in the garage with Joey, Nicholas um, uh, Bovey. 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 Yeah. And you threw like paint thinner or whatever on them, which is flammable. And you, and you're taking matches and you're flicking them with your finger and lighting them up with your finger. And then you're chucking them at them purposely missing for a while. Your look is so menacing. It was just like, you know, it's like, I can get you anytime. I'm just not going to do it now. That, that was scary. Pretty it's scary. Good acting. <laughs> yeah. Don't mess with me. Okay. Steve. <laughs> I can turn on you right now. I really can. I, I, I totally, I totally asked you for forgiveness for Helsinki. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'll tell you, about, I'll tell you, my really quick, my my favorite story of that movie. Show I am the killer, and it's pretty dark. I'm roller skating in Venice Beach, and back in that, yeah, roller skating, more roller blades, not 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 roller blades, roller skating. And there were signs back in Venice Beach, don't stay after dark gang, warning, 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 all over the place. Well, I'm having a good time. I'm by myself. I pay no attention to the sun. It's gone down. The lights are on coming, coming on. I look around. I am by myself on Venice Beach, and I am surrounded by a gang on roller skates. Very West Side Story. <laughs> but back, these were really scary guys. And I am... Terrified, and I talked to myself. I really thought this is it. I'm going to get mugged, and you know, I, I, and I was in a very isolated place in Venice Beach, and they were there, certain surrounded me. And the leader of this gang comes over to me, roller skates over to me, and he says, "You an actor?" And I go, "Yes." He goes, "Toolbox murders." I go, "Yes." He goes. Me no fuck with you, man. Me no fuck with you. <laughs> and these guys became my friends. And every time I would go skating at Venice, they'd see me and they'd come skating over and say, Wesley, we're going to skate with you today. No one is going to bother you. And, these guys, and they, they literally became my friends. And of course, I don't know what happened to them in their lives. They were, they were pretty rough guys. And, but for those brief moments, you know, in time in, in the late 70s, in like 79, 80, um, they were, you know, my pals. But it saved my life. Toolbox murder literally saved me. By being the killer, it kept you alive. <laughs> it did. It did. And it took, you know, I got into that role and it took me, you know, you hear actors that really like getting like Heath Ledger and stuff for the Joker and things like that, that really get into their character and it really screws them up. And I kind of, I understood that. I mean, I kind of became a little reclusive because I was doing soap opera at the same time. I got off for the several weeks we did the filming of, much murder, but I went back to days of our lives, and I, I, there was a darkness. I could feel it. I mean, I felt I felt different for the longest time, and uh, so I. So every time I see an actor that <laughs> goes off the deep end, 
I go, okay, I kind I kind of understand that 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 sensibility and that that commitment and uh, you know. I don't normally ask for specific things in a movie, but I just have to ask with that same thing with the garage scene. Were, was that you with just doing that flicking light in the matches with your fingers, you know, or did they give you yeah. like special matches? Because that, that's a, that's a talent. <laughs> they, 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 we were on the set and they handed me these wooden matches and I went, Hmm. And I played it with it. I could light it. I said, I went to the director and said, Hey, look, I'm going to do this. Cause I thought it was really menacing. It just, because, you know, the old matches, you could light by, by friction with just the fingernail. My problem was I practiced so much that my nails started to hurt. And I could, <laughs> I was thinking when we had time to shoot, I didn't know if I was going to be able to do it. It was really painful. But I was able to do it. And, and I, you know, just it, it's so good. It's like fire just suddenly appears on your hand. Um, you know, but I had my other favorite scene in Full Box Murders is uh, there's a scene when I killed Cameron Mitchell. Yes, spoiler alert. And uh, and I had just seen King Kong, the the new remake with I think Jessica Lange. The seventy six one, yeah, seventy six. This is the seventy, you know, seventy whatever, seventy seven, seventy eight. And uh, and there's a scene where Kong holds Jessica. She's all muddy and dirty under a waterfall, and he's like oogling her, you know. <laughs> and so I, I, there's a whole thing with the dolls. You watch the show and. I kill Cameron and blood is all over this doll. And we were in the kitchen. And I said to the director, I got an idea. So I just killed Cameron. I just, I just ignore the hell out of him. I don't care he's dead. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, here was a big star. I just killed him. Yeah. I don't even, I don't even acknowledge it dead. And I go over to the sink and hit him with a spray arm. And I, this bloody doll, the dripping with blood. And I hold her and look at her like I'm in love with this doll. And I turn on the spray arm on the sink. And I wash the blood, and you see the blood drip off of her, and I'm like, like, fantasizing about her and being a little sexual about it. And uh, and he said, and they and they kept it in. They said yes, yes, because before it was just me killing him and then going to the next room with family, uh, and and not being a nice guy. So uh, that was so I added that little transition, and you know, I, was, I was happy with that one. Well, I'm glad they kept it in. It's it's about like a minute long scene with you and the doll in the in the faucet and. It really adds to the character's creep factor. I mean, you just like this guy wow. is way out there. You know, it's like cuckoo for cocoa puffs. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, I, I I go to uh, um, I had two movies out at the time. One was a, a Hanna Barbera movie, very happy, you know, Disney esque movie. And we go to to Hollywood Boulevard, and it's one of those dark rainy days, and this is one of those theaters that had seen better days, had been a porn house for, you know, had been a, a great, you know, vaudeville place. It was a porn house. And now they're showing, you know, movies that are not doing so well. So I think it was a rainy day in LA. I've got about seven friends. and hey, we're going to see one of my movies. It's playing right here on Hollywood Boulevard. So everybody, because it's raining, it's like everybody's got coats on. We go into the theater. There's no one else there. Just us. <laughs> and the movie starts in Toolbox Murders. And Toolbox Murders opens with a lot of gruesome, slashing movie, blood and death and nakedness and stuff like that. And I looked look to my right and left, and all of my friends, I swear, had their jackets over their heads and were hiding. They weren't watching the movie. And Lisa, this girl I was living with at the time, she looked at me. She said, I, was like, I thought this was the Hanna-Barbera movie. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, excuse me. <laughs> you talk about you talk about like bait and switch. They think they're going to go see Chomps, and they're, and, that, and they're seeing the toolbox murder. <laughs> <laughs> they were not happy. <laughs> oh my god! Just before we just before we, oh, that that is funny. The most, un, the most unusual thing about that day it was raining in Los Angeles. <laughs> And that was the strange thing, Steve. You didn't pay attention. Yeah, yeah, the other thing. Yeah, another day in Hollywood. Because you're a Marylander. You just don't understand. Exactly. <laughs> now, before you did Chops, you also did another horror film where you, you weren't the, the, the top build. You were one of the supporting actors. That's Jennifer. Yeah. And Lisa you, Pelican. Yes. It was, it was, it was, it was the, it was Carrie with Snake. Mm-hmm. You know, she was a, you know, a high school girl being, you know, bullied and could conjure snakes. And oh my God. And they actually, I, they didn't have a role for me. They said, we want you in our movie. I go, okay. They said, we'll write you a part. I go, okay. <laughs> so they wrote this part of it. And this bad boy. And, uh, you know, we had, had a blast filming it. So, and again, I just did, I just did the, the, did I do the high school? No, I haven't done that one yet. So, uh. Yeah, it was, it was, yeah, at the very end, I get attacked by snakes, and uh, it was terrifying. They had, uh, they had a snake wrangler with a giant aquarium with all these snakes. They were non-poisonous, but this guy, he had a big belly, and we had this cat that was part of the show that they had, they had uh, put to sleep. It was part, it was part of making him look dead. So he's got the cat, and the cat's woken up, and he's got it sitting on his belly, and this huge glass aquarium, and every color snake you can imagine, right? And we're in, we're about to film, and the scene was, the snakes were all over me, and they were attacking me with live snakes. So we're sitting there talking, you know, like casually. He reaches in, grabs a snake, a gopher snake, and he hands it to me. And I got this big old gopher snake, and I'm petting it like it's a puppy. Like petting his head, like I don't know what's wrong with me. I'm just petting this thing. Well, the snake wasn't, and 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 the snake wrangler's hands were gnarled, like all distorted and contorted from bites, from snake bites. And so I'm petting the snake. This snake rears up, opens its mouth, and and starts and strikes my face. It's going for my face, and and the wrangler puts his hand in really quickly, and the snake bites his hand. And then they say, Wesley, on set. And I am shaking. I mean, literally, I, 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 I'm terrified. I'm really terrified. And I'm, sha- I'm literally shaking because my scene is they put all these live snakes on me. And I'm holding two of them and pretending to hold them back. So, like, looking like the snakes are trying to get at me. And I'm trying to, you know, muscle them away. So it's a fantasy scene. And I'm, and I'm screaming and yelling. I scare the snakes. So much in screaming, so loud, so terrified. The snakes emptied their bowels all over me. I, they were that scared of me. And the snuff. I hope you're all enjoying this story out there, please. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll stop for a meal break. And the snake, it's all over me. And the smell, and I'm screaming, and it's a fantasy thing. And I'm holding these snakes back, and they finally go, cut! And I run and throw my clothes off and I jump in a shower, some house or something, they're filming, and I'm showering and oh, the smell and stuff. 
And the director comes in and goes, Wesley, Wesley, that was so good. We want to add more to this. And I go, oh, no, we're done. We are done. I've been attacked by a snake, and I, 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 I no, no. <laughs> That was and that was the end of that snake thing. You've been attacked. You've been defecated on. I mean, what else could you want? <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. My claim to fame is I scared a snake. But, uh, <laughs> I'm scared of snakes. I mean, I'm just you know, like I'm genuinely like, oh no, no, no snake. I'll, I'll give you my 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 brief snake story. If my my children were in elementary school. They they used to go to this one um um park thing, and they'd have like a reptile park. And as a parent volunteer, they'd ask you to help at a different station. So I was always helping out the guy with the reptile thing. So he'd pull out the snakes and hold the snakes. Well, the last, my last child, Patrick, when he went through, he had to go help out another thing. But I'd been there twice before with my older two children. So he's like, ah, you know what to do. So this is, you do this and this and this, you'll be fine. So now I'm alone with all the snakes and all, all the other reptiles and amphibians and all that kind of stuff. So I get to the part for, you know, I, put, put up, I pick up the snake and so people can, See, like the kids can see it, they can touch it on the end and that kind of stuff. And kids would always ask me, can the snake bite? And I said, anything with a mouth can bite. You know, it's, it's always a standard thing. The, the second to last time I have to do it, I pick the snake up. And I guess the snake at this point had had enough of being picked up. So I'm, I'm holding the snake. The snake turns and bites me right on the hand. And now I'm talking to elementary school kids. So I just keep talking. I'm going over to lecture points, hitting the stuff, because I know if I pull, the snake's just going to rip flesh. I just have to wait for it to relax its mouth. And so after about a minute or so of me talking, it took its mouth off. I put the snake back in, all calm and collective. The teacher is freaking out a little bit, like, and all this stuff. So the kid's like, do you, do you need to go to the hospital? Are you okay? You're bit by a snake. I said, nah, I just need some soap and water. Now, listeners, I'm a first aid instructor. I teach about snake bites, animal bites, all that stuff. So I knew what to do and how to treat it. So I was, but the key thing is when you're, when you're dealing with elementary school kids, you just got to, I was acting calm. I was using my inner actor. Stay calm. Be cool. <laughs> Whoa. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Good for, good for you. And Oh God. I, I, I get, I, I assume you never did that again. Last child, last round. <laughs> I didn't pick him up. <laughs> that last You're group a that, good father. The last group that came through, I was like, the, the snake the, the snake doesn't want to come out today, anymore today. Oh. <laughs> I wasn't picking that oh. snake up anymore. He, I think that me and that snake had a divorce at that point. We, we were done oh. with each other. <laughs> I remember being in Texas as a kid, and we'd go catch water moccasins. You know, poisonous water moccasins, little ponds and stuff like that. We are as stupid as could be. Well, being a pit viper, they're, they're unlikely to cause you to die. I mean, you know, the coral snake is the worst, and that's um, a different type of snake. But uh, nobody right, came I here. To, nobody wants to know about all the snake stuff. But if you do, <laughs> email me, listeners, and I'll email you back quest answers. <laughs> well, at, at the at the end of Jennifer, there's remember this was before CGI, and they had a small Mercedes convertible, and uh, she conjures up a big uh, a, a python. And they brought in a, this huge python. I think it took about seven or eight guys to lift this python out. It's so heavy. And we were in a soundstage, and the, the convertible's in, in, in the middle of the soundstage being lit. I think, they're, I think it's yellow. I think it's a yellow Mercedes. I think it was. And they're going to wrap the snake around the Mercedes. So that's how big it was. And they say to us, listen, everybody, get next to an exit. Because if the snake gets mad, 
it can it can in a split second go from the middle of that sound stage to you. That they can move that fast because I thought it's just, you know how fast can a python move? They said no. Everyone everyone stand next to an exit in case there's a problem. So that was that was I think it was the last day of the shoot. I was gonna say you probably didn't want to come back anymore after that. You're like okay. Yeah. And of course now today, so now they'd be all CGI. I mean it would be all you know they could. They'd be much more terrorizing, and you know there'd be more vipers, and but they'd all be they wouldn't be on the set. If only you were on in, Raiders of the Lost Ark, you did that scene. Snakes. Oh, <laughs> it had to be snakes. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! Did you have any? Did you have any memories of Jeff Corey? Because he played the father he, the, the, in the thing during Jennifer. Yeah, he, got, he was mad at me. He was mad at you. <laughs> so mad at me but not for the show it was because Jeff was one of the biggest acting teachers in Los Angeles and when I first got to LA it was recommended to go to Jeff Corey and I auditioned first class and I got in and I went to his first class and at the end of the class I said you know what this isn't for me and he goes what because I guess getting into his class was really tough and I go you know this I, I don't like this I, this isn't for me he was so mad. I said, "How dare you quit my cat class?" I remember that. <laughs> and but I did. I, I I left. I never saw him again. And then suddenly, I'm in a movie with him. <laughs> and, and like, what's he going to say? <laughs> and, well, you can, yeah, that's that's Jeff Corey memory. Yes. Well, I mean, you know, it's not every acting coach is for is, is appropriate for every person who wants to learn because there's so many different methods and styles and things, and you got to go with what. You, what works for you. But I remember his, he was mad. I guess people had not turned him down before, you know, and uh, I didn't know any different. I just thought that, and I don't want to do this. Well, there's always that. And probably, and I was thinking, probably I was thinking I couldn't afford it. You know, there was so, you know, I, who knows the real reason why I had to quit, but uh, it was interesting. Well, it happens, you know, and, um, <laughs> Speaking of snake bites, chomps. You know, you know, we're talking about chomps biting. <laughs> oh, good transition! Oh my God, that's why you get the big bucks there. Oh yeah! Oh yeah! <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> I'll tell I'll tell my my wife and children. It's like, oh, I'm going to be watching chomps for this interview, and they go, oh, it's another. Is it like toolbox murders? I'm like, no, no, it's not. It's it's the canine home protection system. It's about a, a computer dog, and it's a, it's it's like a Walt Disney seventies type comedy, but it's done by Hanna Barbera. And and I was like, it's 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 different than you're thinking. And they're like, we don't trust you. <laughs> <laughs> I guess like well, your friends, you're... they like your friends that went to yeah. the movie. They don't trust you anymore. <laughs> It was it was it was Hanna Barbera's first live action movie, and Don Chaffee directed, who did Peak Dragon for Disney. But it had you know, come on, you know the cast. It was every major player, from Red Buttons to Jim Backus to Conrad Bain. Valerie Bertinelli was my girlfriend. You know, uh, Chuck McCann. I mean, it was it was, uh, oh my God, it was it was amazing the cast. So, oh, it's a great cast, and. Um... Speaking of Don Chaffee, I mean, you you brought up Pete's Dragon, which is literally my favorite Disney film. Is Pete because I was the right age, right time. It's my number one favorite. But also Jason and the Argonauts. I mean, you know, come on, this is a guy that's done a lot of 
totally different types of films and, and, and yeah. successfully. It was such an honor to be part of all that. It was like, you know, but you know, I'm, again, I'm young and I, I didn't really understand the, the, how fortunate I was to be there. I so. think, I think the premise of this movie is something yeah. I, 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 like should be remade as I think with, if it was remade that the technology they have now, they could really ramp it up instead of showing the, cause a lot of times, you know, with the dog, they're showing kind of the same scene over and over with the, the, the effect, which is similar like land of the lost where you get a certain, you know, scene, they got the dog doing what they wanted to do. Okay. We'll keep showing that. And I think if right. they were able to, with the computer, the CGI, they could really make that thing work and you could come back. And if you were to come back, what role would you want to be if they remade Chomps and they had you and Valerie Bertinelli come back? <laughs> oh, yeah. Jim Backus's role is the bad guy. I mean, come on. This, this, it's more fun to play the bad guy than the good guy, you know. But, uh, but you know, watching, watching Red Buttons and Chuck McCann was like, it was like a master class of comedy. Watching these guys, it was Abbott and Costello on steroids. And they were, their timing, and it, I mean, Red buttons. I mean, you know, it was. I, I, you know, I couldn't believe that I was. I was there, you know. And Valerie Bertinelli. I mean, she was the most beautiful girl in Hollywood. And there was a, a group of us that used to hang out there. Mackenzie Phillips, who was on One Day at a Time, and Deborah Lee Scott, and uh, uh, Linda Blair. That whole group of you know, little, you know, we were all kind of part of that. And Valerie was kind of part, a little part of that. So it was, you know, back in the day, it was so much fun because. Like all the teen idols, when I used to do all the Tiger Beats and Team Magazines, we all knew each other from David Cassidy to, to Sean. I mean, Sean and uh, Cassidy and Leif uh, Garrett used to come swimming at my house. You know, it, it was just, a, it was a, it was a very friendly world of a, a small group of people. Because there were, you know, only three networks at the time. There were, you know, so movies, movies stayed on, you know, the screen for, you know, several weeks, not for, you know, a, a day or two. And, uh, but yeah, so it, but but you know, I got to give Valerie her very first screen kiss. Uh, and it was just you know, it was just again, just lucky, right place, right time. Oh, and for people, the listeners that haven't seen it. I recommend see it. It's it's a really nice family movie. Um, it, it's enjoyable. It plays it plays still on CBS shows sometimes. It was one of the biggest hits in Australia. You know, it's a, it's, you know, I've been a mechanical watchdog that becomes a home protection system. It's a, so it, it, it's a lot of fun. And what I like about it, it's, it's a, the dog Roscoe. It was the, the, the dog you modeled off. It was your personal dog and you make the, and you make the canine protection system look exactly like Roscoe. It's, it's like a Benji type, a little bit bigger than I guess a Benji type dog. So it's this little dog or, or more on the smaller side and it's, on steroids. I mean, it goes through walls. It goes, it has, it has bionic eyes. I mean, it has x-ray eyes, actually, you know, it's, it's amazing. And you say different commands by numbers and it's just like 100, never say 100 around chomps uh, because it jumps up and does its karate move on you. And you end up on your back. <laughs> yep. Uh, chomps 86, which means stop. And, and in fact, I, when I did that, I just did, it just came out the Blu-ray, and I did behind the scenes. And Dwayne Poole, uh, who was one of the writers, and I actually watched the movie and commented live for the hour. And uh, and I asked Dwayne, I said, Dwayne, did, did the numbers have any meaning to you? You know, other than eighty, everybody knows eighty-six. Stop, basically, or get out. Mm -hmm. 
And he said, no, you know, I just, I made them up. And uh, so I thought, well, that was disappointing. I thought, well, no, there's got to be a correlation to these numbers. You know, it, it was, it was, it was, it was quite a wonderful shoot. And uh, I remember the first day I arrived on set, I had a, I had my truck, I had a little ranch, a little horse ranch, and I had a Ford Courier. And I pulled into Pasadena on location at this mansion. And I, the crew comes running out and the director's like, and I'm thinking, oh my God. I'm starring in this movie. They're treating me like a big star. They're all coming to welcome me. This is so amazing. I'm like full of myself. And I, I get out thinking they're just going to throw roses at me. And they go, is that your truck? And I go, uh, 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 yeah. All right, listen, the truck we got doesn't fit into the driveway for the shoot. We need to use your truck. Can we have your truck for the, for the movie? I, I go, uh, 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 yes. They took the keys and off my truck went. <laughs> And and, I, and they're all gone. I'm just standing on the middle of the street going, what the hell just happened? And so I had a smaller truck, and it, there was a driveway that I had to drive to. So it would be my truck in the show, and it just it was too big. They got in this big truck. And I remember the first scene, the very first scene, I'm, I'm in this truck. So I'm in this truck, and I'm pulling up, and all I do is roll down my window, look down, and where Chomps is supposed to be, I go, Chomps, you know, Chomps, 86, station extent and drive my truck away. I'm sitting there in my truck, waiting for the first year of this big movie, a lot of money, you know, it's my first starring role, and my truck overheats. <laughs> Steve is coming out. I mean, I've never had problems with my truck before. Steve is coming out, and they're like running, oh my God, how dare you? It's like, it's my fault. Like, I did something horrible. And uh, <laughs> when they, took, they got guys to fix it, and then they, they were yelling at me, you need to pay for for the new radiator here. And I go, listen, you took my truck. You paid for the radiator. They paid for the radiator. But, uh, so you weren't charging them to use the truck, so it's going to be a little like, uh, you know, you scratch oh, my back, I, I scratch I, your back. I think I did get a little money for the truck. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but it's kind of like now when I see the, when I see Chops, uh, which I just saw it again when we were doing the, the behind the scenes, you know, it's like a home movie. There's my truck. I, oh, I see the rip in the, the upholstery there. Yeah, I remember that rip. And, uh, yeah. That, it's that, fun. That, it was it, it's fun. That's pretty cool. Now, when I watch the movie again, I'm going to be like, oh, that, that, that actually is his truck. And my film be like, oh, no, it's not. It's still a horror film. No, it's about a dog. It's a comedy. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> look, at the, look at the description of the movie. It's I'm not kidding. <laughs> <laughs> But but speaking of always moving forward and, and, and doing stuff, I find it interesting. When I was growing up as a kid, watching Land of the Lost, so you were part of my childhood, you know, doing that part. And you were a part of all three of my children's childhoods with a show called Dragon Tales. Dragon Tales, Dragon Tales, it's almost time for Dragon Tales. Come along, take my hand. Let's all go to Dragon Land. Yep, Dragon Dale. Yep, because you know what is it? I wish, I wish with all my heart to fly with dragons in a land apart. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I saw many episodes yeah, with them. <laughs> I'm impressed. I'm impressed with Dragon. Yeah, one of one of my my favorite creations. I was the co-creator with the three of us and developer of the show, and uh, yeah. Yeah, it ran for nine years on PBS, animated. Uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, I, yeah, one, one, of my, one of my proudest moments. And, and I believe you were the one who came up with um, Zach and Wheezy, 
the two the, the conjoined twin drink. But you called it different when it was when originally it was what um snuff or snarf and snarf, booger. Snarf and booger. We're gonna be the name. PBS goes, no, no. Zach and Weezy. <laughs> so uh, they're two headed dragons. And uh, you know, because two heads are better than one. As, as the song goes. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's you know. And it turned out they're one of the, the when I do shows and stuff, and people come up to me, um, and they're one of the favorite characters. And what I love about these shows is getting to meet people. A lot of the kids on the spectrum, uh, that uh, from all ages, Dragon Tales hit a nerve. And I, I, I'm friends with a lot of kids that that have have gone or going through their issues and stuff. Um, and they can sing every song from Dragon Tales. They can. They know every character, every plot line, um, and when they, well, I always sing the songs with them, they, and it shows that they, and people will gather around because the, ah, boy, the, the enthusiasm on these kids' faces, and it touches some parts. You know, music is amazing. It, it cuts through a lot of disabilities and traumas, and, and you know, even even in senior homes, you know nonverbal seniors that are with dementia, you start playing, you know, an old Bing Crosby song or Sinatra song and they can sing every word and then they shut down. It's like a doorway. And and I, and I experienced that with Dragon Tales an awful lot. In fact, there's a young, young man that was recently in Dallas and he is a huge Dragon Tales fan. I met him in Vegas at a show and I stayed in touch with him and had lunch with me and his family and and moved to Dallas and took him to lunch. Um, and he's in a wheelchair, he's wheelchair bound and stuff. And I, the thing I had the most, the, the best thing I have of Dragon Tales was I have an original cell, hand painted cell. It's beautifully framed. And I gave it to him uh, for his wall. And he was just like over the moon about it. And, you know, that's just, you know, that, that's, the, that's the real joy of these shows is seeing, seeing how people's lives are touched. And, even Land of the Lost, because, you know, when Land of the Lost came out, you know, everybody was a kid watching the show. So whatever was going on through their lives, we had divorced kids and kids that were, you know, latchkey and all sorts of stories that will break your heart. But Land of the Lost, those shows were a window and a door for them. So when we, as performers, we never know, you know, we, we, we do a script. and we, I mean, I don't really think about the, the long-term effect of the words I'm saying, but it is amazing how sometimes they circle back and you realize the impact that those words had or, or and are still having. Oh, I definitely agree with you. And I think that not only applying to performers, but just when you're talking to people casually, you can meet somebody and they, you know, you're just having a conversation and, or you say something and you don't know for you, it could be just an offhand thing, you know, a compliment or whatever. And that could be right moment for to hit them at the time of that day where they needed that thing. On the other hand, you can also say something really bad, and you don't know what kind of effect that's going to have. You don't know what their day's been like, and that could be the thing that pushes them over. So you, it's constantly, you want to be cognizant. You don't know why people do the things they do, but it could be that that particular day they're having is a very bad day. I agree. Words, words have power, you know, and especially when, you, when you're perceived as having some sort of authority, whether it's, whether it's you know, a policeman or a celebrity or a teacher or your boss, those people that you sent, you feel you, that you give some sort of a power that those words then resonate and can, you know, make or break you. 
And, uh, and we, we, not to preach, but we all have to be very careful of what we say. And because it is, there is long-term effects to things. You know, uh, this song from uh, Into the Woods, children will listen. You know, you have to, they, the words, the words change our lives and, 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 and define who we are. Especially if you're dealing with young children, you know, like adults could probably handle it better, but you never know. But children, on the other hand, you know, it's so impressionable. I, I was a Boy Scout leader and other and a coach and stuff like that. And I had young men or women that would come up to me that I talked to about different stuff. And they'll say, oh, wow, I, I remember when you said this particular thing. And, and I can't remember what I said at all. But they remember it. And it helped them do something. That's exactly what you mean. When you're an actor and you're saying that, it, you're doing your role and then you don't know. And, of course, I'm only affecting a smaller group with TV and movies. You're affecting millions and millions of people. Yeah, I mean, like, one of the, one of the beautiful, oh, God, we have so many beautiful stories. Kathy and I sitting there from Lanza Lost, and um, one, one gentleman, I mean, he's in his 50s, came up and he was sobbing. And he said, um, so when I was a kid, my mom and dad were divorcing. And in the third season, we lost our dad, and our uncle comes in. There's a sort of a jumping the shark moment. But um, and he said, I didn't know how I was going to handle my dad leaving. And he said, I saw that your dad left, your uncle came in, and your family survived. And it gave me the strength to know that a family could still survive in spite of what was happening. And he said, it, it changed my life. And he was hugging us. And there was one, a blind couple, a, 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 a married couple, and they had both had sight as children but lost their sight about the same time. They met at blind school and then fell in love, got married. And But they remembered Land of the Lost. They could see when, when Land of the Lost was on. And Kathy was sitting there, and the, the girl says, can we touch you? Can we touch you? And they ran their head, hands over Kathy's long hair and her face, and they were saying, it was a very emotional moment. They said, because they said, we remember you. We, we can see you. We can feel you. Uh, you know, it's moments like this that just define, you know, people think when you go to these shows, you just sit there and, you know, do whatever. But no, it's a different experience uh, for us. And we, we never take it lightly with what, what the, the honor that we have to sit on that side of the table. You know, we just don't. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, I'm a kid from Hattiesburg, Mississippi. How the hell did I get there? You know, and both we, we anyway, it's, 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 I don't get emotional about it or, or, or I'm not trying to be preachy or anything, but it's hard to explain how genuine that we feel about all of that. And I think that's the thing is, it's like people like yourself to go to the shows that are grounded and able to enjoy the love that the fans or the people that appreciate the show give to you. And then you give back to them. It, People don't realize that it's, it's 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 a nice beautiful circle. Yeah, I mean, if believe me, it feeds us as much as, as you know, you know. When we I meet my 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 idols and heroes, you know, I'm I'm like a little Gaga kid, and then you know we, you know, one of the reasons we bring the raft and all the props, and I look like a circus when we go. If you ever go to Facebook and see all the banners and police deck heads and the rafts and the oars and the life jackets. It's because when you, you buy an autograph, I mean, that's, you know, it's a lot of money. And 
instead of just trying to do a selfie where you're standing next to somebody and pointing your finger at them and smiling, up, hey, how are you? We want to create an experience so that if you come and be with us, we want there we want to create something. There's a moment, and it's not just for the fans, but it's also for us. We 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 enjoy it. We laugh and giggle and scream and sing the songs together, and um, you know it it makes it fun for us, and, and and that's why we enjoy doing it. You know, rather than just sitting there going, you know, I know a lot of listen. We we all know a lot of celebrities that sit there and you know rah, barely even look up. And um, but but we take we we take the honor very seriously. And not only do you take things very seriously, but your philanthropy, you know, you're helping out so many different charities. I mean, March of Dimes, Special Olympics, Lala Pooza. I mean, I, I keep wanting to say the, I keep wanting to say the concert thing. It's like it's like Lala Pooza. <laughs> Well, because it was it was in a swimming pool at a hotel, La La Pool, Pooza, with synchronized swim teams, eighty five celebrities. We raised lots of money for several years. We're uh, seven different charities, from uh, uh, the AIDS charities in Palm Springs to Shelter from the Storm for Battered Women to Breast Cancer. Uh, but we became the anti-black tie event, and I mean, we would have Kay Ballard was in it with the mayor, and you know, Greg Luganis. And, Bruce Valange and Rudo Lee and I mean whoever's in town and every news broadcaster in the in in the Palm Springs Coachella Valley area and we it was all comedy all laughter all singing and dancing and I would spend seven months writing the show and doing the pre-record with my friend Austin Ray and we would put on the show and sell out instantly a thousand people in the audience and raise raise really money and and we had we we start helped start a charity called. Uh, um, it, it, it went defunct, thank goodness, because uh, healthcare changed and women could get access to breast mammograms, free mammograms. Um, but, you know, we the first year we raised money, one of the, 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 the head of the charity uh, came up to us and she said, listen, I, you need to know that there are seven women whose lives you saved this year. But to hear that, because, you know, you give money to charity, you know, we all, we all as much as we can give, give you know, whether it's, you know, any of the hospitals or whatever, food banks and things, Ukraine, anything at the moment. And um, but to, to actually have a face put to the work you do to actual people's lives, because what, what that one charity was offering free mobile mammograms to any woman, no matter what means. You could be rich, poor. You had to prove no. You didn't have to prove any income. Just come. The mobile mammograms. It was the first of its kind in the United States. And we helped, we we got it off the ground, and it became very successful. And and they just, I mean, to to actually have the names of these ladies, and 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 to say that these people right here, their lives, they did, they were not going to get diagnosed with breast cancer had this not been here. And you say, you know, it's like, I mean, anyway, that's the listen. We got I I've had a very blessed life, and and, and I think all of us. That that have been so fortunate and have a good life, uh, you know, we we need to give it back. I mean, you know, I mean, whether it's just one little small gesture, it's not you know, whatever you can do. But I think we all have that obligation on this planet. And I agree with you. And, and listeners, you know, there's there's tons of charities out there. You know, find the one that 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 fits your your you know belief system, whatever you know. Cause you know, some of us I know have families that have gone through 
terrible things and, um, you know, you have friends and family and you might be, that's the one I want to make sure I help out. That's fine. Just do, but, you know, feel free to, you know, do what you can, you know, and um, you never know whose life you're going to change and maybe hopefully prevent what happened to your family member from happening to somebody else. You know, again, when you give money like to, to St. Joe's, I mean, to, to uh, St. Jude's or, or things like that, you know, you, it's like throwing it, throwing it out there into the universe and you don't know where it's going to go. But when you can put a face on, on whose life in a food bank that you've actually, you know, taken a meal home, hi yay! I mean, that's a huge responsibility that we all have. And because uh, sometimes it gets, the world is so imperfect these days, it seems, at least for me. And that we just stop and realize that, think about the actual person that's going to receive the benefit of whatever action you've done of kindness. You know, whether it's in Starbucks paying it forward, whether it's whatever it is, whatever it is, you know, um, and, and just take a moment and pause and, and be grateful that you're the one giving. And, and like I said, it doesn't have to be money. I, I, when I was growing up, I helped out of the soup kitchen and I was helping the food prep. And this is back in the day when restaurants would bring you the food that they're not using or they can't use anymore. So you, I would literally be like cutting off the rotted parts of peas um, pulling off the slime, off the lettuce, so they can get to the good stuff underneath. And you'd see the people lining up along the roadway, you know, to come in and get the food. And then you'd help, you know, help prepare the food, and then you'd get it up there. And you'd see the people that you're helping, and that was their meal or, or one of their meals. Was, a lot of them did two meals a day, and that's all they were going to get. You know, there's nothing in between. It's not like they go to the fridge and they can get that snack and things like that. This was the meal. And when you see that, it just makes you want to, when you go back down there, yes, I'm pulling stuff off that nobody really wants to touch. But for these people, it's a feast once I get that thing ready for them. And and, and there's other things that you can do to help. I mean, just, you know, it doesn't always have to be money. It could just be time and other things that you can do. Or just, we're just getting the recognition out there like we're trying to right now. Well, yeah, I remember when the AIDS crisis hit in Los Angeles and it was devastating the communities and the entertainment business especially. And uh, we started Project Danger Food. We went and cleaned a ki- uh, kitchen and started, you know, scrubbing the, you know, the filth and and then starting delivering food to patients and uh, every day. And it was one of the most – and it, it, it recently celebrated – I forgot how many millions of meals. And it expanded beyond AIDS. It's now – because because of the treatment of AIDS, you know, it's more manageable. But it's it's gone for senior citizens, and and it's gone on to other other illnesses. But uh, and I remember when Bette Midler came on board, was doing a commercial for us. But you know, we started by going to a restaurant, restaurants donating food, and then we would take it to whoever we could. It was a list until we got our own kitchen scrub. We found an old kitchen, and you know, we were all I have photos of us all like you know with with yellow gloves and. And as filthy as you can imagine, getting that ready, and it became one of the most successful charities in the Los Angeles area for delivering food, um, and not just food, but love, and uh, you know, and a knock on the door and somebody saying hello. Because I remember when I was delivering food, there were other celebrities that were delivering food at the time, very anonymously, very quietly, and we had our roots. We'd go pick up the food and, and start delivering, and you'd have your regulars and we were the only person to knock on their door that, that day. And it wasn't just about, it was about the food, but it wasn't just about the food. 
Exactly. And Meals on Wheels is, 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 a, is a, what a lot of people know about. And there's so oh, many different things. Yeah. And the people just, the, the people they're going to cherish that time when they get that, the meal. The meal is one thing, but the time they get to spend with another human. And I think that was something with the pandemic where a lot of people lost that, that human connection. Um, and, I, and that is so important to have. And when you, when it's missing, I think it throws off people's um, bearings, you know, that, that are, are especially people purse. Pe- you know, introverts, maybe not as much, but extroverts, definitely. It, it's, a, it, it's like, I can't be around people. <laughs> I, I remember I was delivering food, and hopefully you'll forgive me, but he's gone, uh, Eddie Peterson, who worked for Elizabeth Taylor. And I didn't know Eddie was sick. And I knocked on the door, and he opened the door, and I was like, shocked. And in fact, Liz was through a big party for Eddie right before he got sick um, at her house. We all went over there. But, um, and Eddie, I, I went in and gave Eddie, delivered the food. And I said, Eddie, do you need a massage? And I started rubbing, massaging his back. I could see was like, he was terrified. He was just terrified. And he started to cry and said, you know, nobody has touched me in a year and so it's 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 not just the food it's it's the, the friendship and the the kindness and eddie eddie passed shortly after that um but you know we all we we, we all you know have have an obligation it's not an obligation it's hopefully it's not an obligation it's just you know anyway we, we hopefully we all do what we can do I think it's normal for people that, you know, to do what the best you can to help out the people around you. And I think that's just the nature of being a, 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 um, a, a society or a tribe or whatever you want to look at it as the, as the different, you know, levels go up, how you can all help each other out. Um, I'm going to ask you probably the toughest question I've asked you today. And, and, and it's not going to be Helsinki. <laughs> <laughs> What is something you've always wanted somebody to ask you or talk to you or ask you a question about that nobody's ever asked you? Oh, my goodness. Told you would be the toughest one of the day. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty much an open book, pretty much. I do have, I do have a few closed doors here. But, uh, boy, um, I, don't, I, I, I don't honestly know. I mean, I cannot think of of a question that I'm pretty open, you know, it's like, well, yeah, gonna, I, I, I'll throw a question at you. That's uh, to see if your uh, memory is. Um, I just want you to know I'm terrified at this very moment. So if you're listening out there, now, if it suddenly goes dark and blank and, and, and I, uh, you know, it's nerve. No, 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 there's no Helsinki, but I, I want to get some insight from you about insight. <laughs> <laughs> Because you, I saw that episode you did with with John Aston and Patty Duke, and right. you played their son. Yeah, and Marsha Wallace. Yes, and Mar- who was also oh in your God. match game. <laughs> oh my! Mar- yeah, like Marsha was hysterical. So Insight was this. It was run by this minister, and it was a Sunday morning show, and they were very moralistic shows. And Insight, this was a story that uh, there were four of us, four actors, and I was the son, and. Patty and, and John were my parents. Um, but the guy that, Father, uh, what was his name that ran it? Father. Uh, Bud. Father Bud. He, 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 Bud. 
oh my God, what is his name? Father. He, anyway, he wore the ministerial outfit and everything. And he had a reputation <laughs> with the celebrities. So before we filmed, we, we all went in there. We, you know, we had rehearsal and Marsha Wallace, who everybody, of course, knows from the Bob Newhart show, played secretary. Uh, she came up to me and she said, Wesley. Oh, God, I wish it was his name. I know you're looking it up. Uh, so at the end, after he, Marcia said, look, after we film the show, he comes and hands us our checks. And he said, but I've been told that he'll hold on to it slightly. Okay. And if you, what, what is it? Father, oh, it, it, it's, it's the priest, Elwood Bud Kaiser. Father Kaiser, that's it. So Bud Kaiser. So Marcia said, listen, I've heard that when he comes to pay you at the end, he hands you the check personally. And if you don't grab it hard, if you just let it, if he tugs a little bit, he considers it a donation and pulls it back and goes, thank you so much for the donation. And so Marcia came up to me and said, Wesley, I need the money. She said, I, I need the money. I said, Marcia, you don't have to give the check away. You're, you're, you're performing for this show. Take the check. So she was real nervous. I mean, really. So we filmed the show. We did the thing. And uh, and we were in the dressing room all of us together, Marsha and Patty and, and John. Uh, Anna. Anna was Patty Duke's real name. So Father um, Kaiser comes in, and he, had, and he hands Marsha the check. And they literally have a tug of war. <laughs> They're fully, really pulling it back and forth. And she finally pulls it out of his hand. And I remember her voice. She goes, Thank you, Father. <laughs> I started laughing so hard. <laughs> Needless to say, I took the check. So, uh, <laughs> and so did so did Anna and Patty and and, and John. But uh, it was it was it was it was just those memories, those fun, 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 fun days. Yeah, I, I just thought you were you've been so lucky to work with. Like we said, um, Conrad Bain, John Aston, um, Red Buttons. I mean, you, you can um, go down the list of people that we've mentioned already, you know, and Valerie Bertinelli and so on and Patty Duke. And it's it's amazing how certain things happen. You get to work with these people that, like John Aston is an acting legend in my mind. You know, he's, he's from the Baltimore area. Still, if I'm, if I'm correct, he still teaches at Johns Hopkins University. And he's, in, I think wow. he's like 89, 90, something like that. And he's still up teaching acting. Wow. And Anna's gone. Patty Duke's gone. And that was so sad. And, uh, you know, life, you know, <laughs> pretty amazing. It is pretty amazing. But, uh, yeah, but insight, you know, since you, you, since you couldn't think of one that nobody's ever asked you, you, you always wouldn't ask about How often you ever asked about <laughs> insight? <laughs> It's, I know, I know, and it's funny because I—it's on—you can—it's on YouTube. I think it's two-parter on YouTube, and I had never seen it because remember we're talking back in the day it would air. There was no way to record it back in those days. It didn't replay itself, so there was so much that I never saw of things I did. So to this day, it's fun because I will—I will get clips of things from Days of Our Lives or or one of the, the you know from Finders Keepers or game shows or whatever I think I did, and I get to see them for the first time. It's like an old home movie, and, and that was the fun thing about the Insight episode. It was just like I don't know. It, it was it was set up. It was small, and and, and Marsha Wallace was just so hilarious. She was the waitress at the diner, and um, and 
John Aston, I mean, that smile and that look that he, uh, what can you say? And, and Patty Duke playing the, your mother. And it, it was interesting because you knew you left, you left the girl at the altar and yeah. you left her at the altar because she was too nice to you and you felt like, and, and she wouldn't argue back or discuss things. And you felt, well, that's not going to work if we don't have discussion. Mom and dad always did, even though they ended up divorced and all, you know, that kind of stuff. And you, you, it was interesting how it looks at things from a different perspective. Yes. Yeah. I was, that day we filmed, uh, I was making my entrance on the way back of the set and, you know, it, they were just doing a rehearsal and uh, it was terrible because I didn't hear the directors because we would say, okay, we're just going to walk through it, you know, for another rehearsal. So I think, okay, I'm just going to walk through it. I'm not going to perform, you know, I'm not going to go 100% of the thing. Well, he had changed his mind, the director. But I'm in the back. I didn't hear it. He told everybody, "No, let's let's go for a take." Well, I come and I start doing my thing, and I'm kind of like not doing it like I'm supposed to do. I'm, I'm just kind of throwing it off. I'm mean, doing it, but you know, I don't have my heart into it. And they stop it, and and they tell me, "Wait, wait, wait, we're 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 going to film this." I because I mean, I was always trying. I, I had such a work ethic that to have done something like that, you know, to walk through a performance would be unheard of, but it, it was an honest mistake. I, I literally didn't hear the call, but that was in front of, you know, and that was Addie Duke, for God's sake. That was, you know, the miracle worker, you know, and, uh, and in front of her, I, I was like, I was, that was one of the, one of the heart, it was really an embarrassing day for me. I, I, I really affected me. I, I was just embarrassed and I thought, my God, I'm in this company with these amazing performers and, and, and I blew it. But of course, then we finally filmed it and we did, you know, we, we did okay. But, um, you know, just, just didn't hear it. Well, in a way, that might have helped your performance because your character comes in kind of, it's like he's embarrassed about what he did. You know, he has to go to mom and dad. Yeah. So I think in, in a weird way, that might have actually helped your performance in that episode. Maybe so. My, my favorite Irish state, my favorite Irish saying is, Hey, what do I know? I live in the back. <laughs> you know, it's like somebody says, what did you hear? Hey, what do I know? I live in the back. In other words, I, I know nothing. I just don't ask me anything. So that was my, I'm, what do I know? I was in the back. So <laughs> it was. Now you're going to be coming up in a lot of shows later this year. I mean, a ton, yeah. a ton of shows. Wow. This episode will be coming out. See, it's my 100th word. It'll be coming out in um, late April, early May. So that way, so if you're thinking of shows, I don't want you to throw yeah. a show that's not going to become up. But I know you're going to be someplace that you and I are both going to be together in June, and that is Monster Bash in Mars, Pennsylvania, just north of Pittsburgh. And I think it's going to be you and Kathy Coleman and the raft that is causing you back problems. <laughs> it, it is. I am so excited because we don't do the East Coast very often, and I'm, Monster Bash is a show that I've always wanted to do. And so we're finally going to get to come and do it. Um, and we're doing a Hollywood show in April. We're doing Schiller in New Jersey, which is a huge show uh, in April, the end of April. Uh, we've got a show in, uh, that's crazy, isn't it? It's almost its 50th anniversary. I think that's why, uh, you know, we're getting so many calls to do shows. But we're doing, we've got one in Seattle coming up uh, in May. We've got a CrossCon for the first ever outside San Francisco up in Oakland area at the Orlando Theater. Uh, just a one-day event, and uh, and that's going to be 
and maybe but it's crazy it is, it, it's crazy how I mean, i've never done this many shows in my life these autograph shows in one year i had to turn one down the other day so it's like it's crazy and we just got back from dallas we were in pensacola florida for pensacola a few weeks ago uh it's it, it's been it's been quite a, a wonderful wonderful time but well, yeah monster bash is going to be a lot of fun I'm looking forward to a monster bash, and I'm definitely t- t- taking the raft ride with you and and Kathy and and going and going and having fun because one time I used to get I used to get lost in the shuffle, but now I want to shuffle in the land of the lost. Bravo, bravo! They all can't be winners. It's a dad joke, Phil. <laughs> well, now, you know, we need to work on it just a little. Uh, I'm thinking, uh, <laughs> good for you. It's so well, good well, for well, you. Well, how would you go? Go for it. You do your approach to it. Oh, you know, no, no, I, I'll, I'll, I'll acquiesce. I'll, I'll, you know, I'll say that, that was terrific. I, Pardon me for ever questioning. No, no, no. I, 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 want the, I want the performer, you know. Let's find out. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, lost. Lost. Find me living in the land of the lost, 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 living in the land of the lost. Did it, Marty Cross. And that was the, that was the closing theme song, which I sang back in the day on 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 Land of the Lost. But uh, it's it's amazing how that song. I, I was watching a family uh, uh, Family Guy. There's an episode where Peter Griffin is auditioning for a a community theater, and Lois is directing. And he gets up, and his audition song is Marshall, Will, and Holly. All the routine, and he sings the whole Land of the Lost theme song. And I, you know, it, 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 it is amazing. I mean, you know, that, that these little songs, Bubble Boy with Jake Gyllenhaal, which is a hysterical Disney movie, and he pretends he's me, and his favorite things are rocker, and he rocks out on the, the theme songs and stuff like that. Dresses like me in one episode, in one of those scenes. And, uh, it's amazing how that song has Marshall, Will, and Ollie. And Will Ferrell, of course, who did the movie, which bombed like crazy. But Will was a huge fan of Land of the Lost. And in, I think it was SpongeBob, was it one of the movies he played, his character's name was Marshall, Will, and Ollie. So, uh, I, so help me out there, guys. I mean, I, don't, I can't remember the name of the movie. I think it was like something. Anyway, but it was it's a Marshall, Will, and Holly. Marshall Willenhall. So he's had, he's had a connection with uh, Land of the Lost for, for many years. Well, we're not going to hold the movie Land of the Lost against you because they, they cut you out. So that, that right away was a black mark. <laughs> I know. Sid Marty Croft at Comic-Con in San Diego a few years back said, all right, all right, yes, yes, yes. We blew it. You know, it lost $200 million. Uh, $100 million in production and $100 million in uh, promotion. I think I think the head of Universal actually had to resign over it. It was a you know, it won the Raz the Razzie Awards, you know. I think, but if you watch it today, it actually kind of sort of starts to hold up again. If it's because it's not it's not Land of the Lost, it's a whole different. And I'm I'm at I'm at the big premiere of the movie now. For all of you that don't know, it Land of the Lost is about a father, a daughter, and a son, Marshall, Will, and Holly. 
in the movie with Will Ferrell, Marshall is Will Ferrell. Uh, Holly is his assistant, not his daughter, right? And um, so they have a romantic relationship. It's not father and daughter. So I met Robin's Chinese. <laughs> it's the big premiere. Every celebrity in the world there, photographer. It gets quiet. We're in the Robin's Chinese thing, you know. And I'm watching this movie, like, going, what the heck is going on? And there's a scene, a quiet scene. The audience is quiet. But Will Ferrell kisses Anna Friel, so Marshall and Holly kiss. It took me by surprise, and I didn't mean this in this very quiet theater. I go, ah! Like that, I screamed. I didn't mean to do it. Silly. It was guttural. It was a knee-jerk reaction. And everybody's looking at me. And I was so embarrassed. I was like, oh, no. But it, it was just so out of context to see my dad kiss my sister. It was. You know, it's, it's like it's like. No, I can't unsee it now. It's too late. <laughs> <laughs> and Phil Paley, who played Chaka, we went to the party after they had this big party, you know, at, at Hollywood and um, and Highland, and upstairs that catered. They had ice sculptures and props and bars and waiters and food and you know, I mean, Muriel Hemingway and all. I mean, everybody was there, right? I, Bill and I are standing in the corner looking, just looking at everything. I said, Bill, do you realize that this party cost more than the entire three seasons of Land of the Lost? <laughs> and it did in today's, in today's dollars. So it was, that was crazy. It was crazy. Oh. And everybody, I, mean, I think everybody knew after they saw the movie, was going, oh, okay, this is not going to last long. <laughs> And it didn't. And uh, but we always got the TV <laughs> show to look back at and and, and watch on, and enjoy. Exactly, exactly. Well, I, I want to thank you for, for spending time with me on this 100th episode. You know, of the show, and, and I hope you enjoyed it. I did. Thank you so much. I, I talked about a subject that's really dear to my heart, me. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> 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 I have, I have rambled on like a little banshee here. So, uh, but thank you for having me on again. And congratulations. I'm so excited. I mean, that, that's quite a milestone. 100 is, I mean, the work, the effort, the time, the prep to do 100 shows is, it's mind blowing. I, 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 my hat's off to you. Well, congratulations. Thank, well, thank you so much. And listeners, I hope you enjoyed this and go to this, can, get, look at, look at Wesley's, yours webpage. Wesley, I think it's WesleyYour.com, right? Yeah, WesleyYour.com or, or Facebook, WesleyYour, Instagram, Twitter, you know, all of them. And you'll see the conventions that are coming up, things that he's done in the past and stuff like that. And when he and he actually does share pictures of the people in the raft on his Facebook page. I mean, they, they you know, they, they like to share that stuff too. So they get them and they put them right on there. And so you, you'll get an idea what it's like. My, my favorite picture when we did with, uh, with, uh, like um, John Schneider from Dukes of Hazard, he's in the raft with us. He had more fun. Somebody photoshopped it and turned the yellow raft into the General Lee with with the the, the red the red card, the stripes, and the number. And then we did one with Dawn Wells, of course, played uh, a Marianne in Gilligan's, and she of course just passed. But they turned the yellow raft into the minnow, the SS minnow, with the minnow on the side, with the with the ding, you know, with the 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 hole in the side of the boat 
I mean, it's been really amazing that, you know, so Sam Jones, you know, gets it, got into it recently, you know, uh, Flash Gordon, and it, it's just, it's a lot of fun. So Lonnie Anderson, it's just everybody's getting into it. WKRP in Cincinnati. <laughs> oh my God, yes. Oh, I have stories about that, but that's another day. That's oh my God, day. I got stories, yes. But listeners, they I used to hang out at my ranch. So, uh, I hope you enjoyed it. And if you want to hear more of those stories, see him at the convention and say, what about those stories at the ranch and Lonnie Anderson? And you'll find out. Maybe he'll share it. Maybe he won't. But there's only one way to find I, out. Ask him. <laughs> I saw Sam Jones. I hadn't seen him since he used to hang out at my ranch. He'd become a big star since he did that. because He was just a, a struggling actor. And I reminded him of an incident that happened at my ranch. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, regarding a broken bed. So... He would, he turned red and started laughing. Goes, oh my God, that's right, it happened. <laughs> so that's, another, that's for another day. Well, li- listeners, we'll leave you on that cliffhanger. Thanks again, Wesley. Thank you. I hope everybody enjoyed that episode. And again, if you have any feedback, email us at diecastmoviepodcast at gmail.com or you could go to our Facebook page, Diecast Movie Podcast. And leave us feedback there with the episode notes. Let you know again, our next episode is Hammerama, episode number three, One Million Years B.C. with Alistair Hughes. And just to give you a heads up, the episodes that are following that, Martine Beswick's interview will be coming out after that, followed by our James, James Whale Roundtable with Joshua Kennedy, Gregory Mank, and Frank Delostrito. And in episode 104, Kathy Coleman from Land of the Lost will be coming to join us. And I hope everybody will enjoy that. Otherwise, here's a little bit of that Password Plus episode that Wesley and I were talking about with him and Elizabeth Montgomery in Helsinki to take us out of the episode. Hope you enjoy it. And everybody have a good day. Thank you. Bye. Rocks. Hot rocks? What do we have up there? <laughs> diamonds. Is it diamonds? No. Yeah. All right. Fantastic. Karen has the option. You think you got it? Mm-hmm. Okay. I think so. All right, got to pass the play, Karen. I'll play. All right. <clears throat> Helsinki. Oh, please know it. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Country. Switzerland. No! Oh! I know what it is! It's very good. Very good. Did you fall down? All right. Scandinavia. Norway. No. no. Okay. Wait a minute. All right. I'm coming back now. Oh. Yes, go ahead. Anything. Sauna. Sweden. No. Okay. <laughs> You're all right. No, I'm going to put it up. I want the world to know that Wellesley, Yor, and Elizabeth Montgomery do not know that Helsinki is in Finland. I forgot she said that after a while. All right. Three clues up there. Nobody gets.